Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. It's like, why, why, like, is, why is everything about competing for global dominance here? Like, that's so embedded in the American psyche. It's like people don't even question it. Like, that should be an end goal in itself. It's like, how about just providing a better life for American citizens, you know, like... Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MTT podcast. Uh, today, we have a special guest with us, Carl Ja. Uh, welcome, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Oscar. Hi. Okay, great. Um, so just a bit of uh, background. Today's topic is Xinjiang. Uh, specifically, we want to talk about or give context to and discuss the allegations of genocide and and we want to talk about talk to you about uh, what's what's happening in Xinjiang what you what you think is happening in Xinjiang um but first let's just give us a bit of background to our listeners um about yourself so what's what's your background there Carl uh so i was born uh i was born and grew up in china i was born in 1976 one month after mao passed away and I spent the entire decade of 80s in China, going to elementary school, junior high. And in 1990, I came to United States to join my parents who were already, uh, my dad was the first generation of Chinese students going abroad after Cultural Revolution. And uh, so I, I you know, uh, completed my education in, in, in US. I went to high school, college. Um, I stayed, worked there for 29 years until 2019. That's when I, I did a trip to Asia, and and then that's when I real I, I kind of fall in love with Bali. So that's where I'm right now. Um, I I also run a podcast called the Silk and Steel Podcast, which is mm. primarily focused on China history, culture, and politics. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that that's why you invited me today to talk about this topic. Absolutely, that's it. Okay, great. So that's the, uh, sorry, I always get it wrong. Silk and Steel? Yes. Silk and Steel podcast. Okay, so you can find that. And where can we find your podcast? Oh, um, it's it's on, on iTunes, uh, 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 Podbean. What's the other, um, what's the other popular one? Um, Stitcher platform. Apple. Yes, yes, uh, I'm on there as well. Um, and I'm I'm doing a blank here, <laughs> but but you, you just Google for it, you'll find. I'm it. sure we'll find. It. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. And I, uh, you also look me up on Patreon, so I, I have more like okay. membership stuff there as well. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's great. I'm certainly going to be taking a look at that too. Um, wonderful. Okay. So let's 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 start with the the topic. I mean, yeah, uh, I think before we get into the the nitty gritty of the current thing, the genocide and all that kind of stuff, let, let's 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 put our perspective into uh, the context, the background. So um, uh, I think we're talking about the grand context. Let's talk about um, how long has Xinjiang been a part of China? Uh, how far back does this relationship uh, go? Um. First, I, I'm gonna apologize for the background noise. My, my dogs are playing in my room, uh, so <laughs> my, you might hear a little bit growling as I talk. Um, so, 
I, I will try to keep this brief about, you know, the Xinjiang history because there's a lot of it. Uh, but to, to, for a, a short summary, um, Xinjiang is a very important region on the north, currently northwestern part of, of China. And it's, it's the, about the size of Alaska. So it's huge. And this area, because it sits on various strate uh, strategic region that connects China to the to the outside world, the um, it, it, the traditionally the area today we know as Xinjiang was known as Xiyu or literally Western region in Chinese, um, and it sits on the historical Silk Road. So uh, you know, in, in the past when when China uh, goes to connect with the uh, with the, the world outside, especially to its west. It, Oh, the Silk Road goes through Xinjiang, so it's very strategic, and and so since Han Dynasty, um, that's when the empires based in China, you know, start acquiring, uh, start incorporating Xinjiang as part of its territory. But then again, you know, based on the strength of the Chinese-based empires, uh, you know, the the the, the control by a different dynasty kind of wax and wane throughout the years. So. After uh, about uh, so Han Dynasty, we're talking about like two thousand years ago, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, about a thousand years ago, you know, around uh, Han Dynasty, uh, as a result of you know, kind of the slow collapse of the Tang Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, China lost control over this region, and it, and and since then, it's it's kind of on and off, you know, like. Uh, uh, during the Mongol uh, conquest era, the, the, the area of what is today Xinjiang what became a battleground between the, the Yuan dynasty based in China and the Chagatai Khanate based in Central Asia. But um, in 17, then in 1760, uh, as a result of the, the battle between the Qin dynasty China and, and the Zhuanggar Khanate, that was based in Xinjiang. Uh, the, the, the two sides were fought, fighting for supremacy, uh, basically controlling of the of the Mongol people in between them. And and in in the end, the Qin Dynasty triumphed. So by 1760, the Qin Dynasty conquered the Zhuanggar Khanate that was based in Xinjiang and incorporated this whole area. Uh, so that's that's when the name Xinjiang uh, came about because mm. Xinjiang means new territory in Chinese. Uh, and for the Qin Dynasty at the time, that was new territory. That that was the name of, that was given to this 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 vast region. And uh, so, since Qin Dynasty, that became um, kind of more or less incorporated into what what we know as China today. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. through, through, there was a couple minor interruptions. Like in in 1864, there was a uh, there was a, a general greater uh, Muslim rebellion in northwest China that spread to Xinjiang. So Qin so Dynasty which, which lost control for about about 15 years until like 18, 1877. Um, then then they restored control. But after the collapse of Qin Dynasty, um, the the you know China became turned into so-called the warlord era. You know like. The Xinjiang was controlled by warlords, and and you it, it, it was fought over. There was 
um, multiple rebellions happened in Xinjiang between nineteen uh, between nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. It's very tumultuous time. Then in nineteen forty nine, this is around the end of uh, Chinese civil war between the communists and the the Kuomintang, the nationalists. Uh, at that time, Xinjiang was divided. Uh, the, the, in the in the uh, in the three district in northern Xinjiang, uh, there was a brief um, establishment of the so-called the three district government uh, that was backed by the Soviet Union, and the rest of Xinjiang, with the capital based in Urumqi, was controlled by the nationalists by the by the Chiang Kai-shek's uh, nationalist uh, troops. Uh, but in 1949, as the communist victory uh, became apparent in the rest of the mainland China, uh, the, the the nationalist garrison in Xinjiang decided to defect, and then the the communists dominated the uh, uh, northern three northern district of Xinjiang decided to incorporate into the Chinese merge with the Chinese Communist Party, and so that's how all of Xinjiang became incorporated into People's Republic of China. Of today, so that's kind of the brief history rundown mm. of the Xinjiang mm. um, up to 19, 1949. Brilliant! Now that was, that was a beautiful, um, beautiful and uh, incisive, but not, not not getting too lost in the details. That's uh, brilliant. Thank you. So, um, yeah, a Western territory at the edge of Northwestern territory at the edge of China, very big territory, um, and as you say, uh, it was a battleground with Khanates with the Mongolians. And and later with the Civil War too, and even uh, with a bit of Bolshevik or Soviet um, yes. influence too uh, around 1917 and, and during the warlord era of Chinese um, history. Okay, um, great. So, uh, so in its current state, I guess we could say 1949 uh, Xinjiang has been a part of of China, but also it's been, uh, I suppose. If we consider it part of Chinese, uh, the warlord era, that the whole of China was fractured at that time. Yeah. So you could also say that maybe since 1760 is kind of uh, yeah. a better a better starting point of, of its yeah. of its more permanent uh, sort of current form. Yes. Chinese as a part of the Chinese state. Yes. Um, so so actually uh, older than further back than than the Republic uh, the, than the founding of the United States of America basically. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. To give to give a sort of more uh, an example of, of of another nation. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, and so then, you can you describe Xinjiang to us, or, or how you see Xinjiang in terms of people? Um, what is the region like? Uh, what makes it different to other regions in China? Because obviously there's uh, there's a lot of variety in China. Um, so what what is Xinjiang like? Yeah, um, Xinjiang is a very ethnically diverse region. Uh, so I'm sorry, that's my dogs again. No Stop problem. Um, in in Xinjiang, the uh, the majority of the population are uh, Turkic speaking and 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 and, and uh, also also practicing uh, Islam, right? So uh-huh. so the, the 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 demographics of Xinjiang kind of varied, uh, but in 19 um about yeah let, let's in during the Qing dynasty uh era uh it, it was xinjiang was kind of xinjiang was divided uh you know there's a it's, it's a huge region that if you look at on a map 
uh, it, it, right through the middle of Xinjiang, there's a massive Tianshan Mountains that divides the region into two halves, the northern and southern part. And the southern Xinjiang is the homeland of what today what we call the Uyghur people. Um, and the Uyghur people, they are uh, a Turkic-speaking, uh, a majority uh, Muslim uh, population. They uh, so they the the um, uh, that the, they live mostly in the oasis oasis cities uh, along the edge of the Tarim Basin. So Tarim Basin is this uh, uh, is is a. Uh, uh, it's it's a it's a, it includes this uh, Taklamakan Desert, which is the world's yes. second largest moving sand desert. Uh, and uh, the you know, it's, even though Xinjiang is big, but a huge part of it is taken up by by desert. And along these deserts are these glacial fed oases. Uh, that's where people live and farm, uh, you know, for thousands of years. And and the you know during nineteen so during nineteen thirties during nineteen thirties as a uh, a part of the the policy within Soviet Union to kind of define uh, ethnicity of the people in Central Asia uh, the some some representative from Xinjiang they they participated in the meeting. In, in in Tashkent in in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet Union at the time, and they decided to name the sedentary farming uh, Muslim Turkic population of uh, of Xinjiang. They decided to give it the name Uyghur, right? Mm. Uh, but Uyghur is actually an ancient name. It was uh, it was an ancient people who migrated from Mongolia like about a thousand years ago. Um, that took over the whole region, but the the name Uyghur kind of fell into disuse for like several hundreds of years because um, uh, originally Uyghur referred to this uh, a population of Buddhists. Um, you know, the, the, when the Uyghur came from Mongolia, they adopted Buddhism, which was a local dominant religion back then. Um, but but by by like 1500s, 1500s, that that term kind of fell in disuse. Uh, but mm. but nine, so in nineteen by nineteen thirties, um, in this kind of the nation, I guess you can say nation building process that started in Soviet Union, uh, they decided to give adopt this name, uh, ancient name of Uyghur to to name all the Turkic uh, uh, farming population that's living in Xinjiang. Right, but but Xinjiang also have different other different ethnicities. So there, uh, just <clears throat> there, there are also the Turkic uh, Kazakhs and Kyrgyz who are nomadic. Uh, you know, practice uh, element uh, uh, animal husbandry, and and there's also the the Tajiks who who live on the near the Pamir Plateau, and then there's also the you know the Mongols who who have been uh, you know lived in Xinjiang for for almost a thousand years since the uh, since the days of Mongol Empire and then and there's uh, there's also the Chinese speaking Muslims so where I'm talking about the Hui Muslims uh, and then the Han Chinese so so Han Chinese have been also been living in Xinjiang uh, kind of on and off you know depending on the the control from the you know the, the China based empires but but 
Starting from 1760, as a result of Qing Dynasty acquired Xinjiang, um, the the Xinjiang region was was greatly depopulated during the war between the Qing Dynasty and the Zhuangzi Khanate. And as a as a, a policy, the Qing Emperor Qianlong, uh, you know, decided to resettle uh, heavily depopulated Zhuangarian Basin, which is on the northern part of Xinjiang, north of Tianshan Mountain, with uh, with farmers from both uh, inland China, heartland China, but also with uh, uh, farmer Turkic farmers from the south, from southern Xinjiang. So that's why Xinjiang has this kind of very eclectic, very diverse population um, mm. ever since. So right now, um, Kind of, uh, there's kind of still kind of divide. Uh, you know, the northern Xinjiang is a bit more has a has a Han majority population. So the the Urumqi, the capital Urumqi, for example, is like 75 percent uh, Han Chinese. Uh, but in the south, in the traditional homeland of Uyghur people in the Taran Basin, uh, you know, Uyghur people still make up the majority of the, the population. So overall, I think the divide, demographics divide is about uh, 70, there's, I think there's 20 million people living in Xinjiang right now. Out of 20 million, there's 11 or 12 million are Uyghurs. So they're, they're, they compose about like 40, 46% of the population. And Whereas the Han Chinese make up another like uh, 36, 38 percent of the population. And then the, with the rest be made up by the Kazakhs, the Kyrgyz, the Tajiks, the Mongols, and the Hui Muslims, etc. Yeah. So okay. that, right. that, I hope, like, yeah. I no, no, this is good. This is yeah, good. Okay. This is good. I think uh, it's, it's good. The, the context is being set very well, I think. Um, okay. A quick question then. Uh, just want to draw back a little bit, not too far into the history. Uh, in the nineteen during the Civil War, um, I know you mentioned that the KMT was in Urumqi, and then in in the northern section, you mentioned that the there was a breakaway, a sort of somewhat of a, a Soviet sort of influenced um, republic or a situation like that. Um, where did the Uyghurs sit uh, in uh, the Uyghurs, as well as perhaps the other group, perhaps primarily the Uyghurs? Where did they sit in the, the Civil War? Where were they? predispositions okay so yeah so during the um so this after the collapse of Qing dynasty um as i mentioned earlier the uh, china kind of break apart into different warlord controlled territories um you know xinjiang was controlled by by several uh, a series of chinese warlords until 1930s 1930s there was a big rebellion in xinjiang against uh, the Chinese warlord rule and it was uh, the, the the rebellion started by by the Uyghurs in uh, what is today Kami or Kumo and and because that area used to be um, the land of the traditional um, the the Khanate of, of Kumo the the Hami Hami Khanate um, their status so it was like a kind of semi-autonomous uh, uh, um, semi-autonomous uh, politi uh, political entity that was granted recognition by you know the Qin Dynasty emperors. But in 1930s, uh, when the last Khan of Kumo died, um, the Chinese warlord uh, Jin Suren he decided he's going to abolish that uh, the Khanate altogether. Kami is 
Hami area of Hami is near eastern Xinjiang. You know, it's that it, it's a it's a it's near the Turpan uh, depression, Turpan Turpan depression in eastern Xinjiang. Um, so so rebe then rebellion broke out because he the the Chinese warlord he was not only he abolished the the, khan, the traditional khanate and he was trying to import uh, Han Chinese uh, migrant uh, migrant settlers to come into the region. And, and that spark of a rebellion and the local Uyghur farmers, they reach out for help to the Chinese speaking Muslims in the next province over in Gansu. So this is, we're talking about the Hui, the Hui Muslim. Uh, the, mm. Hui Muslim the Hui Muslims, they, they are, they are uh, considered, today they're considered a separate ethnicity from the Han Chinese. Uh, you know, their, their, their mother tongue is a uh, various Chinese dialect, but they, they practice Islam, right? That's, that's what sets them apart from the, the Han majority. And the, the, the Hui Chinese, uh, Muslim warlord, uh, Ma Zhongying, then he led his army into Xinjiang in 1930, in about 1933. And then there was, became a big free for all, uh, civil war that happened in Xinjiang. Uh, during this time, uh, one of the one of the, uh, the the original Uyghur rebels escaped to Kashgar, on the far west of Xinjiang, uh, in the area of Kashgar and Khotan. Then they established the so-called the um, first uh, East Turkestan Islamic Republic, uh, facing Kashgar. But this this uh, statelet only lasted six months because, uh, you know, the 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 Uyghur rebels they had a fallout with uh, with uh, with a Hui Muslim uh, warlords they they invited over. So Ma Zhongying wasn't happy that you know they, these Uyghur rebels decided to start their own thing. So he sent in his own own uh, you know the Chinese Muslim army. To, to put down this uh, this so-called um, East Turkestan Islamic Republic uh, in, mm. in, in, in in few months, and then he um, captured Kashgar. Um, he decapitated the rebel leaders and 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 actually pinned his head on the wall of the the the, uh, the Kashgar mosque. Um, and mm. uh, because he he was planning to start his own kind of little little. Uh, control area in Xinjiang mm. and then mm. that's a then he continued his civil war with the with the, with the Chinese warlord in Xinjiang at this time was taken over by census high who was based in Urumqi um, at this point in 1930s the Soviet Union stepped in uh, because census high uh, from Urumqi he reached out to Soviet Union uh, and Soviet Union decided to come in on his side, so the Soviet actually sent over the air force. They sent over uh, armor, uh, armor columns. So they crushed the Chinese Muslim army uh, led by the Chinese Muslim warlord Ma Zhongying in the southern mm. Xinjiang, and the Xinjiang became uh, once again, quote unquote, united under the warlord Census High. And and in 1930s, Xinjiang became somewhat of a Kind of, we can, you know, some people say, you know, like a, a Soviet client state, so-called, because since the time he, he uh, reached his power because of the Soviet help. And, mm -hmm. and so at one point he even applied to, uh, for membership in the Soviet Communist Party. It was turned down, but, but, they, but he was, uh, yeah, he even applied for Xinjiang to join the Soviet Union. Again, you know, that was turned down. 
because you know Soviet Union wanted to reach their own separate um, agreement with the Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then in 1941, you know, we're talking about World War II, as the Nazi Germany's uh, army was approaching Moscow in the Battle, battle of Moscow, since his height mm -hmm. at this point, he thought he's, he's doing his little calculation because this also is around uh, right after Pearl Harbor, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So United States entered war against Japan. And now U.S officially became allies with China, with China, nationalist China under Chiang Kai-shek. So he figured, okay, so U.S. is joining uh, with Chiang Kai-shek, but the Soviets are being besieged in Moscow by the Nazi Germany. So uh, I think uh, the, you know, his crystal ball telling him the Soviet star might be declining and the mm. Chiang Kai-shek star is rising. So he decided mm. to, he decided he's gonna give the Soviet advisor the boot, and then he's gonna join Chiang Kai-shek. <clears throat> and at that point, you know, there was a lot of uh, Chinese communists uh, actually working in Xinjiang because, you know, the, 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 the connection with Soviet Union. So Mao's younger brother was actually in Xinjiang at the time working in the government. So, so since it's high arrested, uh, purged all the communists from his government, arrested Mao's younger brother, had him executed, uh, and, you know, officially declare allegiance to Chiang Kai-shek. And, you know, Soviet Union didn't take that very well because, you know, they, they felt betrayed. So in 1944, right. um, Soviet Union then sponsored a rebellion in northern Xinjiang, uh, first led by the Kazakhs, but then later joined by the Uyghurs. And also a lot of the Soviet-educated um, uh, Uyghurs and Kazakhs in Central Asia also returned to Xinjiang to join this rebellion, and uh, and and you know like Soviet financed this this rebellion because they wanted to unseat the the the, the Chinese warlord census high, and mm -hmm. and they established this was the establishment of the so-called the Second East Turkestan Republic in mm -hmm. in the three northern district of Xinjiang, and. And the, the East Turkestan Republic um, government at the time was a broad coalition who were against the Chinese warlord census high. So it not only included like the Uyghur nationalists and communists, but it also included like a more a traditional kind of conservative Islamist element. And, mm -hmm. and the Soviets weren't very comfortable with that uh, because they, they feel like these people could influence their you know their ethnic brethren's back in central asia so then what happened is uh with the with the soviet sponsorship the uyghur and kazakh communists in the three northern district they um they launch a soft coup and they purge purge all the kind of the conservative islamist elements from their government and and also uh, uh Soviet Union was entering into negotiation with Chiang Kai-shek's government about the post-war settlement in China. And, and as a part of that was, you know, the Chiang Kai-shek was supposed to recognize the uh, independence of, formal independence of Outer Mongolia. But in exchange, the Soviet Union would respect the territorial integrity of China. So that would include Xinjiang and Manchuria mm -hmm. and, you know, other parts. So. So then the, the, the Uyghur and Kazakh communists in northern uh, Xinjiang, in the three northern districts, they, um, they took away, they, they officially 
took away the title of East Turkestan. They, they, they declared themselves the revolutionary government of the three northern districts instead. So, you know, they, they stopped using the, the title East Turkestan. And, and then they entered into negotiation with the uh, with KMT. Because at that time, you know, since the time he went over to, to KMT, but then Jiang Kai-she didn't trust him. So Jiang Kai-she sent his own army into Xinjiang. And, and basically, since Tsai is out of the picture now, and, and the KMT okay. army is now in Xinjiang, and now there was a, a brief standoff uh, between the two armies, just um, uh, some, some, just right outside of Urumqi, right? They're, 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 right? The two sides were facing off across Manas River. And, and right. but because of this complex background negotiation between Soviet Union and um, and the nationalist uh, government of China, they decided so the, they're, they're going to form a coalition government in Xinjiang, you know, with with a representative from the three northern district and also from the from the uh, the nationalist side controlled area. Um, so at that time, uh, but but in effect. You know the the northern district, the three northern district in the Yili Valley was kind of run on its own. It became an autonomous uh, a region at this time. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, 1949 hits. You know, the Chinese uh, Civil War is wrapping to an end. The KMT army is being swept uh, away from from mainland China, and uh, the KMT garrison in in Xinjiang there's still a hundred thousand strong. They were trapped, so they thought, okay, well. We'll just defect now. We'll just defect to the communist cause. And the Uyghur Kazakh communists, they say, hey, well, you know, the communists won, so we're going to merge our party together. Uh, mm -hmm. They, uh, they, there was, um, they, they were going via Soviet, flying via Soviet Union to, uh, to meet with Mao, Mao's government. But then there was a, there was a plane crash, which, uh, which, uh, you know, like, Kind of wiped out the the top leadership of the 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 the, the three northern district of government, uh, but the the the, the re last remaining um, kind of the senior person was uh, Sipidin. Um He is uh, he. If people watch the founding of the People's Republic uh, ceremony on documentary footage, you will know a man in fedora hats standing behind Mao. And that's a Uyghur communist uh, Sipidin. He's he, so he he was, you know, considered one of the founders of the People's Republic. Uh, you know, because that's he brought the three district of Xinjiang over to the communist side. And so so then then the, the, that's how the whole of Xinjiang became incorporated into the People's Republic of China. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So that that's and and at this time, uh, you know, Mao also. Um, ordered the the People's Liberation Army, which entered into Xinjiang uh, in 1949, about 100,000 strong, and also the the surrendered KMT garrison, another 100,000 strong. So he ordered them to demobilize and become like soldier farmers in Xinjiang. Um, and and that's um, that's kind of like the the start of the the big Han Chinese migration into Xinjiang because now there's suddenly like this all these two two hundred thousand uh, soldiers got demobilized and and stationed mm. in Xinjiang and then they uh you know the, there was very me uh so they they actually there was some schemes to for 
finding wives for them from in, in, in inland China, you know, like the um, <laughs> they were uh, famously sending in women from Hunan, from Shandong, from Shanghai to to mm -hmm. pair off with the soldiers. And mm -hmm. then 1960, uh, as a result of the Great Leap Forward, um, there was a great famine in China. A lot of the famine refugees in surrounding provinces, because at this time, Xinjiang was least affected by the famine during 1960s. Mm. Xinjiang came out, out pretty well. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the Chinese uh, uh, farmers from Gansu, from Henan, they went over to Xinjiang to join their relatives in the army. And, and th this was one of the largest uh, kind of migration wave uh, of the Han Chinese people into Xinjiang. Uh, there was uh, like a, about a million famine refugees. And then on top of that, in 1960s, after Cultural Revolution, Mao also sent a lot of uh, the, the educated youth to the countryside and to, to the frontier. So there's another million or so uh, just Chinese educated youth that got sent to Xinjiang. So that's mm. when the kind of the demographics of Xinjiang uh, change when you know the Han Chinese became about around 40% of the population start from 1960s uh, that that figure kind of stays the same until pretty much today basically that you know that kind of pop the, the the demographic uh, set, um, spread you know 40% about 40 40 36 40% Han Chinese and 46% Uyghur um, Population divide kind of kind of started from from that period forwards. I see. I just wanted to touch on something. Thank you. That was a excellent uh, details there and, and some of the stories. I, I, the anecdote about Mao's brother uh, being killed. That was uh, interesting. Very interesting. Um, I just I want to touch back. People who are interested, there's a book called the uh, called the Warlords and Muslims. Uh, is is a Xinjiang is. A, the, the Xinjiang in the Chinese Republican era by, I think, by Forbes. People can look it up. It's really expensive, though, because it's one of those uh, academic books. So uh, get, it, get it, you know, people know where to find it. <laughs> right, find right, it. right, 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 right. Just wanted to touch on something. So Sipida, this character said he was wearing a fedora at the founding of the People's Republic of China. Um, yeah. So he was the leader of the three districts, as you say, a revolutionary leader. Um, he was a Uyghur. Um, yes. So was he, he continued, so did he die in the plane crash uh, of the leadership? No, 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 no. he, he, so, so after the plane crash, he became the most senior became, leader. Yeah, so he, okay. he was with, he actually served, um, uh, like during the Cultural Revolution, he was, uh, so, so actually because of his own effort, Xinjiang became, uh, was turned from a province into autonomous region. In 1954, yes. and and in fact, it was named a Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region. The the Uyghur uh, was attached to the to the naming of the region because he he famously said, you know, the you know autonomous region is not is not about you know given to like mountains and rivers. You know, it's about to given to to people. So people. like yes. yeah. So so that's how Xinjiang became Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region today. Mm. Um, and he was actually the, the the kind of the the top leader both in po political and military sphere in Xinjiang um, throughout Cultural Revolution. Um, and he kind of uh, when he went to uh, at the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1978, 
um, he kind of took a retirement role. He went to Beijing. He became, um, was part of the Chinese political consultation uh, or the Chinese People's Congress. Uh, I, but uh, like in 1980, in 1980s, he retired to Beijing. But up to this time, he was in Xinjiang. He was in charge. I see. I see. Okay. Yes, that's what exactly what I touch on. So this uh, Sipita, he was a leader from 1949 up until the 80s. Um, and I just wanted to just if you could touch on uh, the what. So there's a couple questions. Firstly, uh, the relationship that the Uyghurs have had with the party, particularly since 1949, um, was Sipita the sort of main character? Were there other leaders? Um, also, in terms of the leadership of the of the Uyghur population, do they have cultural leaders? Do they have um, a religious leader like many other Muslim uh, communities around the world do? Um, and then also, just on top of that, without going into too much detail, perhaps, if, if we can just give a basic explanation, what does it actually mean, an autonomous region? What autonomy does that actually uh, entail? Okay, so I will address autonomy uh, first. Sure. That's easy, easier to address. Okay. Um, so, by Chinese constitution, uh, the autonomous regions, the, they have the right to um, educate like the, the, the people in their indigenous language. So, for example, uh, up to 2000, um, in Xinjiang, there is a separate tracks uh, for Uyghur uh, uh, education. You can choose. You can either choose for like a Mandarin education or like Uyghur only track, which can go all the way to college. You know, you can be educated from kindergarten to college only in Uyghur language. So, so education wow. rights is is one of one, you know very important. You know, if you go to autonomous region in China, whether in Mon Inner Mongolia or Xinjiang or Tibet, uh, you will see on the signboards there will be uh, dual. There will be two languages. There will be the, the the Chinese characters, and but then there's also the the local the indigenous languages. So, so that's that's one of the. Um, I, I'm not sure about Xinjiang, but I know in Inner Mongolia, you know, to be a government worker, you have to be fluent in both. Like there are tests, you know, there are tests for government uh, workers. You ha you have to be have fluency in both Mongolian and and Mandarin Chinese. Uh, mm. That was the requirement to to work in the government. Um, and and so that that's that's one of the one of the big difference. And also, like the, the the chairman of the Xinjiang Autonomous uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region, have to be a Uyghur, right? So, so okay. um, I mean that uh, underneath uh, there's also a different uh, within in Xinjiang. There's also different autonomous prefectures for other ethnicities. So there for the Tajiks, they have a, a like a Tajik Autonomous County of Tashkurgan. Uh, for the Kazakhs, they have the Ili Kazakh uh, Autonomous uh, Prefectures. Um, so, mm -hmm. so yeah, there's different levels of autonomous uh, um, administration, but by that, yeah, so so preference of cultural language uh, was will be given to the to the to the autonomous regions. Like like for example, um, I went to uh, the Dai Autonomous uh, Prefecture in Yunnan in twenty nineteen. Um, mm -hmm. And and other than the the language issue I talk about, you know about the uh, you know there's will be Dai language script. Uh, it was Dai and Jinpo uh, autonomous prefecture, so it will be Dai or Jinpo and and Jinpo uh, scripts everywhere. 
but you know they also um you know they will have their uh, own cultural holidays right you know so the Dai new year jimpo new years are celebrated mm -hmm. you know like the, the government schools will will, 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 will you know they, they will honor that and uh, mm -hmm. and and another another uh or in the particular case of the Dai the Dai jimpo autonomous prefecture i went to is a border area because it's on the border with Myanmar and the people there they kind <clears throat> they can freely enter and go um cross the border between China and Myanmar um but 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 you know if they have residents if they they can show they're the residents of the autonomous prefecture but, but that's okay. because that that was on the border zone but but so there's a different separate checkpoint when once you leave the autonomous prefecture into other parts uh, there, there will be there will be other checkpoints. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a, another border check. <laughs> I see, I see, I see. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not that open. It's not complete. It's not just a big hole in, in the border that you can go no, all the way. No, no. <laughs> Beijing, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I see. Um, that's that's fascinating. Okay, and so just I think um, yes, that's what the autonomous region side of stuff. So a lot of education, freedom. Um, then the local sort of leader of the autonomous region must be a Uyghur. And there is also a breakdown within the autonomous region, uh, Kazakhs having their own uh, autonomous uh, sort of prefecture, as you called it. Um, just to touch again on, on Sipida and the leadership, so yeah, and the yeah. relationship the Uyghurs have with the Communist Party since, since uh, not so, 1949. So, um, there was, as you are well now, there was a Sino-Soviet split in the 19, early 1960s. That actually affected Xinjiang because before 1960, uh, so there was a lot of Soviet influence in Xinjiang, right? We already mentioned earlier that Soviet Union yes. influenced a lot of the politics in Xinjiang. Um, a lot of progress progressives in Xinjiang, uh, they actually look to Soviet Union as example, especially to all these different um, <clears throat> uh, different uh, 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 republics in Central Asia, right? Soviet Republic in Central Asia. So. Uh, it, as a result of the Sino-Soviet split, um, at the time, um, the S Soviet Union was also trying to develop Central Asia, so, so there were shorter labor. So they tried to attract uh, people from Xinjiang to go across the border. So in 1962, there was a so-called eating incident. That's when the Soviet consulate, they were handing out uh, Soviet passport very freely to anybody who asked. Um, and then... You know, about sixty over sixty thousand people in uh, in the Ely uh, district, they went over or went across the border to to Soviet Union. So there's a large uh, Uyghur and Kazakh diaspora, uh, uh, you know, from Xinjiang to the Soviet Central Asia, uh, resulting uh, from earlier his in history, but also from that that period of time. Um, mm -hmm. And and actually, that will place in uh, you know during the Cold War, during the after the Sino-Soviet split, um, the Soviet Union actually encouraged uh, uh, like kind of the separatism in Xinjiang, you know, using a lot of the Uyghur exiles uh, in diaspora in Soviet Central Asia. They will set up broadcasts uh, in Uyghur and Kazakh language to to you know to over to Xinjiang uh, and, and encourage separatism and uh, mm. but you also mentioned so so right so I basically all the 
the com the Uyghur communists, Uyghur Kazakh communists, who were more pro-Soviet, they 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 left in nineteen sixties. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to say. And then, I uh, right? I mean, there was always kind of a uh, even even back in the day of the second East Turkestan republics, there was kind of the Soviet faction versus like the pro CCP faction within that northern three uh, northern district government. See, I guess what you may what I guess you can say the the pro CCP faction remained in China. Mm-hmm. The pro Soviet mm-hmm. faction they left for the Soviet Central Asia. If that makes sense. And then, um, uh, I mean, yes. So during Cultural Revolution, it has to be pointed out that you know there was a, a period when China was entering this era. This era where all religions were banned, right? You know, like Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, everything was banned. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, that to answer your question about the Uyghur cultural leaders, uh, you know, the, the other side of the divide, you know, there was uh, the, the progressives, you know, who, who, who work, um, you know, so who joined the Communist Party, but there's more the conservative side, the, 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 the conservative religious side, they Traditionally, they're tied with uh, either, either the land-owning class or the, you know, the 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 the, the, the clergy, right? And mm, they yeah. also happen to be the clergy also happen to be the largest land landowners in Xinjiang. So in 1950s, what the first thing that happened was the land reform. So the central mm-hmm. government that took away all the land from monasteries, from mosques, from uh, so all the land was taken away. And then in 1960s, as uh, a result of Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, cl- mosques were closed down and the mullahs were sent to re-education centers, re-education camps. Um, that policy was reversed uh, in 1980s, end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, uh, uh, so, so mosques were reopened, uh, mullahs were, were let out and then went back to the mosque and continued to preach. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the new mosque construction uh, started in 1980s to kind of compensate for the for the loss during Cultural Revolution. And mm-hmm. also another thing is uh, because the Chinese state took away all the land in 1950s from the monastery, from the mosque. So in 1980s, even though after all these mosques and monasteries were opened, they don't have their independent uh, source of finance anymore. So the, actually, the Chinese state finance the mosque, the monasteries. You know, they all the all the all the you know the China, So right now, China, Chinese state is supporting all the mosques, all the monasteries in China, um, and 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 this actually would play into um, kind of the 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 more um, what we call the the, the radicals uh, in in 1990s. Because some of these Uyghur, uh, I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. That's okay. No, no, it's, it's, it's following logic. who returned from Afghanistan in 1990, they will say, "Oh, you know, don't go to these state-sanctioned mosques. You know, they take away from, they take money from the communists. They're tainted. They're not real. They're not preaching Islam. They're preaching like the communist fake version. They're, you know, they all these mullahs are state-appointed. You know, they're not real mullahs. They're they're." 
they're 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 they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're commie stooge right like you can't trust okay. them you know don't don't go to the space action mosque don't listen to these mullahs they're they're trying to feed you communist propaganda right so so this is how but that that is yeah i'm i'm, I'm jumping ahead but but that's, oh, no, that's good good that's this good. is that's where good. the that's dynamic good. will come from but so so this is so right now i mean the the chives the the I think that it's a religious policy in terms of uh, the mosque and the state. I think that kind of relationship uh, right in China is kind of, uh, there might be a close similarity to how it was done under Soviet Union, right? In the Soviet Union, it was, it was also the state-sanctioned mosque and state-sanctioned mullahs, right? And, and, um, and you know, so some people feel like, oh, these mullahs are just being put up by the state to, to regurgitate you know, kind of state propaganda and that, you know, so there's, 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 there's that thing of thought, but okay, well, I'll let you handle the flow of the. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no, I like the, I like where you're going. It seems to, it, it all, it, 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 it follows. It's piece by piece. We're getting places. Um, okay. So I think that's a good description of, uh, the experience of the Uyghurs and Xinjiang uh, more broadly. In 1949, so you're saying becomes an autonomous region. Uh, some of the policies of that, then uh, the nature of the party and the split. So it's how how the Sino-Soviet split uh, cut the, uh, the, the 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 communist faction within Xinjiang into different camps. Um, and of course, I, I think that the state-sanctioned uh, the state-sanctioned mullahs and and mosques is actually very interesting. So after the Cultural Revolution, so obviously every religious group being persecuted, so to speak, in the Cultural Revolution. Once that ends, uh, there are uh, the state supports uh, yes. mosques, in, in particularly in Xinjiang. Okay, and that continues to this day. Um, I think just want to touch on something very lightly. We don't have to go too much into this, but um, there's a particular thing that that I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. That um, all minorities in China were exempt from the one-child policy. Uh, is that accurate? Um, okay. <laughs> So I, I there's different versions of that. So so in the when the child poli the one child policy when it was first rolled out in late seventies, like when I was born, the the, the child, one child policy was already being selectively rolled out in different parts of China, and it, the one child policy changed over the years. So so for example, when I was um, or my parents were working in the Tibetan area in, in Western Sichuan. So even though they are Han Chinese, but because they were working in uh, ethnic minority area, they uh, like at that time, there's no, there's no one child policy applied to say Tibetans, right? But mm -hmm. the Han Chinese who work in uh, ethnic Tibetan area, they get to have two children, so that's why I'm I'm leg I was legally <laughs> conceived. <laughs> and then, anyway, so um, uh, so there was that, but that was uh, you know, uh, but the the implementation of it was kind of spotty because when my when my mom went back to her hometown Chongqing to give birth to me, and uh, and and uh, the hospital first wouldn't take her because they're like. She's second child. Well, what are you doing? My mom's like, but no, no, no. But by policy, you know, we're allowed to have second child because we work in, uh, you know, the Gansu uh, Tibetan Autonomous yeah. Prefecture. And uh, the, the, I remember the hospital, <laughs> the hospital director's like, what do you mean? That's not part of China. 
but <laughs> but at the time, what she didn't know is like the the one child policy was applied differently, like it uh, was rolled out at different different <laughs> differently across. It wasn't like one night that, that it was that the policy was rolled out across all across the country. So, um, but then uh, in nineteen, I think nineteen nineties or two thousand. They start to apply um, one ch- like not one child policy, but but birth uh, like kind of um, kind of um, so so before before uh, uh, no no family planning uh, policy applied to ethnic minorities at all. But in nineteen in in two thousand for ethnic minority uh, population that's over ten million. Then they have they have a policy where you know you you can have uh, you can have two kids uh, and and three if you are in the rural area, so that that there was that. Uh, but then you know the it's the rules are kind of you know this is China the rules don't apply kind of evenly because I went to as I mentioned I went to the Dai and Jinpo Autonomous Prefecture in 2019 yes. right and I was talking to a Dai lady. Um, a friend of a friend, um, and she's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're just having our second child, uh, you know." So I'm like, "Oh wow, well, you know, why is this such a large gap between your first and second? She's like, "Oh, because now, now you know, the the policy relaxed. You know, we just recently changed this two child policy." But I'm like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! I didn't know the, the two child policy applied to the die people, and and also like the die people there. There's only like one million, like right. one." One million, like they didn't definitely not over ten million, but according to her, you know, the the one child policy still apply uh, in their locality. So 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 that's why this is China. This is, this is really mm-hmm. depending on the it's local not- implementation. But in terms of Xinjiang, that uh, one child policy was not applied to the ethnic minority. You know, like um, some people might heard of uh, Rubia Kadir, right? She was was. Made into the chairwoman of the Uyghur Congress, kind of the exile Uyghur organization. Yeah, um, and she she had five kids. <laughs> she had five kids. <laughs> so okay. uh, and, and like so that, but but I think that is changing recently because now now I think they're applying applying kind of like like the the power like i mentioned you know two kids for urban uh couples and three in the rural area now in um uh, in, in xinjiang as well that's that's kind of what i gathered yeah okay 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 i see so so uh so uh, like you said it's china's not as uh, monolithic as nah. as many people might think that there's there's lots of different policy uh, and how it's implemented and who it affects it does vary massively. It's not just um, a broad stroke of policy. Um, yeah. Just a quick one then. In terms of minorities, I mean, we've touched on a couple of things here already in terms of what an autonomous region does. So it gives educational, um, it gives the autonomous, the, the, the minorities language. You can learn that language from, from kindergarten to university. Um, it, it, are there any other measures that sort of protect or even sort of affirmative action measures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, give so, give uh, yes. a special yes. status to, to minorities and to Uyghurs. Yeah, so so there's uh, affirmative action in terms of college entrance exam, right? So, so as many people know, college entrance exam in China is very highly competitive. 
um, I mean, up to uh, like in the 1980s, you know, that back then going like getting accepted to college was almost equivalent of passing the imperial civil civil service exam back in the <laughs> dynasty days, right? Because they're just but so so for the ethnic minorities, they do have um, so the the they they have. They add points, you know, by by they get points for being so they're different point system for like different ethnic minority. Like in in the eighties, you know, you could get points for being Manchu or Mongol, uh, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think that applies anymore for Manchu and or, or Mongol or Hui Muslims. They used to, they used to, but 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 then they're still um, uh, like uh, at affirmative action for. For people whose mother tongue is not like Mandarin Chinese, you know, like case of Uyghurs and Tibetans, which makes sense, right? Like so, so yeah, so so there's uh, they they get added points for the college entrance uh, entrance exam. Uh, that's 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 a that's a pretty well known, yeah. Okay, okay, I see. Okay, that's great. No, that's 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 perfect. I think um, I think that brings us to uh, to the sort of to the 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 the, the, the gritty stuff the, yes. the the main thing that we've come here is to challenge uh, or to discuss uh, we took an hour to get here but hopefully we we you know it's good I, I, think, I think, well people can always fast forward yes. <laughs> but um it's good i think an hour of setting context explaining different policies talking about the other eastern turks and republics you've already answered some of the stuff that we would already be discussing later okay. um and i think we'll also yeah, this this is fine. So, um, yeah, obviously the recent description is that uh, on one hand you have uh, the Chinese government uh, outlines that there's an extremism a problem. Uh, there's you know been terrorist attacks. That um, the policies being pursued in Xinjiang, um, they're actively trying to prevent that. There's something like a, an ideological problem um, and re-education caps. And on the other hand, we have um, others. Uh, particularly Western voices, particularly like among Mike Pompeo, um, uh, describing and declaring uh, genocide—you know, the, uh, the the greatest crime uh, that a state can commit—you know, the the most heinous accusation uh, of genocide, of um, torture, of uh, sterilization—you uh, know, no no holds barred. Just really heavy, heavy accusation. So, so what do you think all about this? What, what do you what do you okay. see there? So let me just get it out of there uh, before we start. Uh, there, what happened in Xinjiang today? You know, there's no way that can be termed genocide. I mean, this is turned into a very uh, like a political football between kind of the U.S.-China tensions. I mean, this is I mean, this is this is Michael Pompeo's project. He he declared genocide on his way out. You know, he that 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 was his goal. Right, Eva. His his establish his legacy, quote unquote, and also you know maybe prepare for his twenty twenty four run. Who knows uh, for for U.S. presidency? And he he also left a poison pill in the U.S. China relations. Because now you know it's be harder for for the next administration, now the Biden administration, to walk back from that. And so hmm. so uh, we even even all these uh, so called experts has been quoted. Uh, you know, Adrian Zenz, right? He's like the one-man mm-hmm. source for all these uh, Xinjiang atrocity reports. Even in his reports, I actually went through the trouble to read every one of his reports. So in his report, he said, well, what happened in Xinjiang is, uh, oh, might maybe turn 
turn cultural genocide. That's what he called. It. He called it cultural genocide. He did not. Um, he, he was trying to finagle that term. But 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 in the now with Mike Pompeo, uh, you know, declaring genocide, that he just shifted the overtone window in the media talking points. Now now like you know all these media, the CNN, BBC are just kind of throwing this term around very very liberally. I think. Um, it, it's both unfortunate and it's very, um, I, I, I mean, like it's, I think it's discredit to, to real victims of real genocide. Uh, I mean, like mm. it's it, to, to compare what's happening in Xinjiang to, you know, to say the Holocaust. That's, mm. I'm sorry, that, that, that's anti-Semitic. I, I'm just going to say it, that mm. that's anti-Semitic. Uh, I mean, we, we can talk about what's happening in Xinjiang right now. Um, mm -hmm. So in the late the latest reports started in 2017, right? So mm -hmm. so in 2017, that's when the Chinese government set up these um, what the Chinese government called vocational training center, um, you know, slash re-education camps. So what they uh, according to the Chinese government, they are basically uh, people who are have been influenced by religious extremism, but the people who have not committed major crimes, so they, you know, for, for minor infractions, they will be going to these uh, re-education centers, aka vocational training uh, centers, where they will be um, educating in the, in the Chinese language, in the, in the Chinese laws, um, and also, you know, the, the, the goal was to prepare them, to give them vocational training centers so they will, once they come out, they will be able to re reintegrate into society to, to find, find work. Um, so that, this is kind of the, the, the kind of the, a, a comprehensive Chinese government program in Xinjiang to deal with the problem uh, that arose since 1990s. Uh, and there's a, that's something that's rarely been talked about in the mm. kind of the media frenzy today, is that there was a problem of, of terrorism in Xinjiang uh, that started particularly in 1990s. I mean, the, now, now they, the, 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 they, they try to, the media try to, Western media trying to glance over that and try to present Xinjiang as like this land of perpetual ethnic conflict that you know that you know goes back to to 1949 even right, but that's not true. I mean, if I I go by the I look for the statement by these China critics and I look at what they see and they say and they cross reference them, right? So one of these so-called Xinjiang expert, uh, Professor James Millward from uh, George Washington, he, um, he, there's a, you can find a clip of him on YouTube uh -huh. saying back in 1990s, when he went, he was studying in Urumqi, when he was studying in Xinjiang, uh -huh. he said the uh -huh. ethnic relationship between Han Chinese and Uyghurs were amicable in late 80s, early 90s, at least up to the time that he was there, when he was on uh -huh. the ground observing. Right. Now he's all on this genocide bandwagon, but he said back, you know, several years ago, the, the, right. the, the clip is still on YouTube. He said back in 90s, the relationship uh, is amicable. amicable, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. one of the narrative that was being spin 
What do you need? Oh, one of the one of the narrative. My wife is uh, reminding me to drink water. <laughs> Thank no, you. No, that's water. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Take so, a sip. Of water. So one of the uh, uh, um, one of the narrative also that's being fed in Western media is that uh, because you know there is a massive settlement of Han Chinese into Xinjiang, that's the source of ethnic conflict, right? So to which I I will point out kind of the the demographic spread in Xinjiang didn't change much from 1960s, right? 1960s when Mao started sending in a lot of the Han Chinese youth and also as a result of famine refugees going to Xinjiang. But from 1960, uh, from 1960s, 70s till, till today, the, it, the kind of spread is constant. It's about 40, 40% Han Chinese, uh, now there's a little bit fewer because you know some China, Han Chinese were leaving Xinjiang because of the the instability in the last few years. But mm-hmm. uh, and also like the forty six percent Uyghur divide that, that that has been since 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then we have the American professor James Millward said back in 1980s, 1980s, 1990s, ethnic relationship were good, were were amicable. Right. So they right. don't what they so, don't explain is really what happened you know what happened yes. uh, after 90s so i think you you might have mentioned this earlier so you can take a sip of water as well um okay, yeah yes yeah, so, so i just yeah is that uh um yes as you said the, the 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 narrative being painted now is that there's a huge influx of han and all the han have just arrived in the last five years or something like that and it's really just overwhelmed it's an invasion of the han into, into xinjiang that, it, that, that they've never been there and, and it's a very recent thing. So that's the one narrative I think that you've already addressed, that that's not valid, that, that uh, at least since um, the 1960s and with the demobilization of the soldiers after 1949, that there's been a, a steady hand population and it stayed at the same level as it is now. Um, you mentioned earlier that the Mujahideen, so out of, coming out of, out of Afghanistan, out of the, uh, the war with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and the, the, the CIA and Western-backed, Mujahideen forces that they played some role or might have played some role in the, the emergence of the, I suppose, fundamentalism uh, yes. into Xinjiang? Yes. So, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about the Sino-Soviet split, right? So that that had long-term consequences, one of which was kind of the reapproachment between U.S. and China. It was the Nixon visit in China in 1972. And then, uh, uh, you know, also as part of that, there was, uh, you know, there was also the, 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 the China-India conflict in 1960s, uh, which Soviet sided with India. And then, so, so China got together with Pakistan after the China-Indian War. And then in 1979, well, in 19, throughout 1970s, you know, U.S. CIA were involved with with Pakistan to destabilize the communist government of Afghanistan, right? And mm. and they and so that led to 1979 Soviet invasion, and and at this time by 1979 China was kind of de facto in the Western camp in the anti-Soviet camp. So mm. so U.S. CIA had um, at the time. China just finished uh, co- finished constructing a Karakoram Highway, which connects Xinjiang with Pakistan. Um, and then, 
also, as end of the Cultural Revolution, the rules were relaxed, the border control were relaxed, so goods and people start flowing across the borders again. Um, and also at this time, uh, you know, CIA was participated in Operation Cyclone, which was its largest project before the most recent Syrian war uh, effort, the, the, the Operation Sycamore. So Operation Cyclone for Afghanistan at that time was the largest CIA undertaking with Saudi Arabia, with Pakistan, um, trying to uh, stabilize Afghanistan and to, to fight the Soviets. Um, and, and at that time, uh, you know, there, there was an interesting story about, because the CIA, they didn't want to supply the Mujahideens with uh, American weapons because they don't want to be traced. I mean, it's obvious, but still, they right. want to... Uh, so they purchased a lot of the Chinese weapons from China because at that time, the Chinese weapons are kind of just like replica of the Soviet models. So it would be, be, you know, it's, it's kind of the Eastern Bloc weapons, harder to trace. So they were buying this, the, the Chinese-made AK-47s to supply to the Afghan Mujahideens. Um, and, uh, the, you know, all of these weapons were coming over, uh, you know, either on ports uh, to a Pakistan ports of Karachi or through overland routes through Xinjiang, through Karakoram Highway. And then um, CIA, they needed mules to transport them. Uh, transport the weapons and mujahideens into Afghanistan uh, because you know there's very limited road in Afghanistan. And um, at first they they try to supply Afghan mujahideens with Tennessee mules. Uh, this is probably some U.S. senators' uh, pet project. Uh, but the Tennessee mules they couldn't hack the Afghan weather. The climate was too harsh. So all these American mules were dying mass. And so then the CIA. <laughs> went to China, they went to Xin they purchased a lot of mules and donkeys from Xinjiang next door over, right? Because the climate was similar. So they sourced a lot of mules and, and donkeys from Xinjiang to carry these Chinese made weapons for Afghan Mujahideens into Afghanistan. And at that time, you know, there was uh, you know CIA even had a listening station in Xinjiang in throughout nineteen eighties to spy on the Soviet nuclear tests in Kazakhstan. And right. and the um, uh, U.S. Uh, embassy acknowledged that in like two thousands. Uh, I don't I don't think it's still operational today. But, but back I, I in so, back, yeah. back in nineteen eighties. Um, and then, but you know, as I mentioned earlier, because the borders are relaxed, uh, people are tra traveling abroad again. Some Uyghur uh, young Uyghur people they were traveling to Pakistan for study for jobs. Um, but some of them ended up on the border area between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's where uh, CIA and in co collaboration with Saudi Arabia, they were setting up this series of madrasas, kind of the religious schools, uh, to mm. indoctrinate all the Afghan refugees and their children in, in the kind of the Saudi version of Islam, the, 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 Wahhabi, the Wahhabi Islam. Yes. So, and, and then, uh, you know, the, for people who, who might not aware, Central Asia traditionally have a very practice a very different uh, brand of Islam. Like as a Sufism in in Central Asia involve a lot of uh, you know uh, 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 shrine worship. There's a, like shrine to saints everywhere, right? Uh, and okay. and one of the 
uh, earlier conflict between like the Arab uh, Mujahideens in Afghanistan was they were blowing up all these saints' tombs because they say that's idol worship. So right. they're, they're they're blowing up all these uh, uh, the, the 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 tombs of Islamic saints all all over and 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 initially that caused a big conflict, but. But in the end, because Saudis, they had the money, they had, they were, they had these madrasas brainwashing the next generation. So that that kind of became more accepted. You know, that's how you know, you know, you know. Later we get we get to the Taliban. But but then um, some of these Uyghur youth they ended up in these madrasas and they become radicalized. And some Uyghurs even went over to Afghanistan to join the Mujahideens to fight the Soviets. Um, but 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 the Soviet, um, you know, as end of Cold War was drawing close, Soviet withdrew from Afghanistan. I think in 1989 or 1990. 89, yeah. Yeah. So and then um, and then Afghanistan became kind of free of the, the various uh, Western backed warlords and and the communist government in Kabul. And at that time, 1990 is when there's uh, some. Uyghur Mujahideen started coming back to China. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I left China in 1990, uh, in, in fact, October of 1990. But um, I still remember while I was in China, in early part of 1990, I think, I have to check, it's either, eight, it's in spring of 1990, so it's either like between February and March, I think, or maybe April, uh, there was a called the Baron incident in, in this uh, county in the Kashgar prefecture in, in Xinjiang, where these uh, Afghan Mujahideen, well, these returning Mujahideens from Afghanistan, they try to try to stage um, they try to stage an insurrection, you know, with with a secret weapon cache uh, um, and, and 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 attack a government installations, and so they were. Uh, that was a major, first major serious outbreak of violence, political violence in Xinjiang. And then, uh, as I alluded to earlier, in up to 1990s, the ethnic relationship between the Han and the and the Uyghur population was still amicable in Xinjiang. And and to the rest of the rest of us in China at that time, um, in state media, we mostly see just like. Uyghur people were presented as these happy dancing people. So we all know like Uyghur people know how to dance and they love to dance. Anyway, that's, that's kind of the, the Chinese state media for you. So, so okay. there's like, um, I mean, if there's stereotype about Uyghur people in China back then, you will be so-called positive stereotype, right? So, so like, oh, Uyghur people, they, 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 they're great, great at singing and dance, dancing. And then in 1990, something changed is, uh, Chinese economy because uh, start uh, you know China, China started marketing reform in 1980s, yes. but Xinjiang was still uh, Xinjiang economy is still very much centralized command economy throughout 1980s. They're kind of because they're so far inland that you know the the the, 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 the market reform reached them late, right? So but it did reach them in 1990s and. Uh, and and before, as I mentioned, you know, you can choose to go to either the Uyghur only uh, schools, or you can choose yes. a Mandarin track. It doesn't it doesn't really matter what language you speak because after you graduate, 
the state assign you a job, right? In 1980s, Hey, 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 stop fighting, stop fighting, stop fighting. My dogs. It's okay. That's okay. Don't worry. No problem. Uh, so, like, back in 1980s, you know, the state pays your tuition for to go to college, but after you graduate, the state assign you a job, right? So, yes. it doesn't really matter. You speak Mandarin Chinese, you speak Uyghur, you are guaranteed a job, right? You know, like, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. But 1990s is when, um, with a market reform, uh, the Xinjiang economy. Hey, hey, stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop fighting. The the Xinjiang economy started to be transformed from a, a socialist command economy with yeah. with more um, kind of with more market market elements. Right, a lot of private and entrepreneurs were allowed to flourish, and that's when um, kind of the the the, the divide. From the economic sense, uh, between the Han and the Uyghur in Xinjiang, start to emerge because you know, uh, for the Han Chinese in Xinjiang, they have uh, this. They, they already speak the language. They, they, you know, most of them speak Mandarin Chinese, and and many of them have family connections with other parts of China, where you know, there there now there have been factories in the coast being set up for export, you know, making toys and shoes for right. US and Americans. And and they it's a lot easier for them to source the goods, right? Because they, if they have the family connection you right. know, for resale, Jin Xinjiang. And and so the, so the economic device start to appear between the Han the Hans and, and the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And on top of that there was also hey, you know there's also a lot of social problems that was introduced by the initial phase of liberalization because uh, I remember in 1980, like it was kind of experimental phase. Like now, now with all the social control that were gone from cultural revolution, people are experimenting different things. Uh, right. The borders were opened up. There was a lot of smuggling. Um, there was a lot of drugs because you know Afghanistan become the started to become the world's largest. Heroin. production base of opium and heroin right a lot of the some of the opium heroin started to filter back into xinjiang uh, and, and xinjiang had a drug problem in 1990s and and so there's a there's smuggling there's there's drugs uh, and you know prostitution start to appearing like in the mao mao kind of you know now like you know put a stop on prostitution in you know when People's Republic of China was established in 1949. But in 1980s, with the you know liberal market reform, liberalization, you know underground prostitution started to appearing. Um, there was also like a like the, a problem with alcoholism. Um, so a lot of this um, returning mujahideens, they start preaching. Uh, you know, they 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 try to attack from the social uh, uh, sector. You know, like. Preaching people shouldn't drink, they shouldn't smoke, mm -hmm. they shouldn't do drugs, they shouldn't shouldn't go visit prostitute. I mean, all the good things, right? All the good things. Right. They start to gaining grounds at the grassroots level, right? I see. Uh, but what happened is once they they reach um, reach a critical mass in the villages, now they're starting to put a more. They, they start to carry out sure, more, more their agendas, right? So so now they're saying. Uh, you know, you should cover up your wife. Uh, uh, the, you know, like, uh, because in Xinjiang was very secular in 1980s uh, and before. Because as I mentioned, Xinjiang has a lot of Soviet influence. 
right? So he yes. took his fashion tips from Soviet Central Asia. And, and Soviet Central Asia was very secular. So Xinjiang up to 1980s was very secular. You know, no, you're not going to see veiled women, right, right, on the streets. Uh, but, but in 1990s, they're like, okay, look, uh, we came from Afghanistan. Um, like the, the state preachers, those, those mosques in the state, sanctioned mosques, those mullahs, they're not preaching real Islam, right? They're, these, these mullahs are communist stooge. They're, they're, they're regurgitating communist propaganda. We brought right. you the true Islam from the Arabs, Arab fighters mm. we met in Afghanistan. This is the, the true Islam from, the, from the, the, the place of Mecca and Medina, right? And, and, and you should listen to us. Go, so don't go to the state-sanctioned mosque. Um, don't participate uh, in anything the, the communist state related. So that's thing true, right? Because if you get married, don't go to the civil... Uh, go to the, go, don't don't register your marriage with the civil government, you know, because you you can attain yourself with the communist. You just come right. to us; we will pronounce nikah, and then you are married, right? And and yeah. then uh, and so they started to to kind of start taking over on like grassroots level. Uh, at this time, also, you know, the Chinese government at this time, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, they're primarily focused on the economy, right? They they are not noticing. All these things undercurrent was kind of bubbling underneath, and 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 um, and another. So, um, 1997. Uh, that was one of the one one big blow up in Yining uh, or in Uyghur called Kuja in the in the northern northwestern mm-hmm. part of Xinjiang. Uh, so 1997, a bunch of these. Uh, 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 radicals these this this former mujahideens they got arrested right they, they got uh, they got arrested so they then they stage a huge protest to demand their release uh in union and a huge state and that protest soon deteriorated into a general rioting and they start attacking uh attacking just un- un- chinese civilians on the streets and, yeah and and so that the eating incident in 1997. That's when uh, it, it it became more serious. Before, like 1990, Baron Baron incident was still kind of small, isolated in a rural Kashgar, right? But Yining right. was a big city, uh, and that that's that's what, that's what was a big thing. And then in two, so so there was also um, the, the the also the Uyghur Mujahideen were still outside of China. They formed their own uh, jihadi group called, um, first it was called the Islamic, East Turkestan Islamic Movement, East Turkestan mm. uh, ETIM. Um, so, the, the, you know, China put them on the terror list. And in fact, United States actually put them on terror list after 2001. Really? Yeah, ETIM. Okay. Pompeo just took them off the terror list before he left office. Yes. Well, just, just, a, just a few months before he went off. Yes, yes. Just recently, okay. a few months ago. Um, so, so, but the ETIM, they actually work very closely with Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And the leader of ETIM, um, they, they, now they rename themselves uh, Turkestan Islamic Party. So the head of the Turkestan Islamic Party is this guy called Abdul Haq. Um, he was originally from Xinjiang. And he was so embedded with Al-Qaeda that he sits on the High Shura Council of Al-Qaeda. That, 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 yes, he was the inner circle. So he was, he was, he was the, basically on the top level command of Al Qaeda. 
Yes, yes. Okay. So, so in this this guy, um, U.S. actually claimed they killed him in two thousand in some. Oh, it's no, maybe not U.S. Maybe Pakistan claimed he was killed in a raid in two thousand, but he just recently emerged uh, around the uh, Syrian war. And in fact, during the Syrian war, uh, the the Islamic Turkestan, uh, the Turkestan Islamic Party, they they were mobilizing people from Xinjiang to go leave China to travel to Syria to fight the jihad, you know, against uh, against Assad, and mm. and. and you know, if people search articles, they will find a lot of stories about detained uh, Uyghur, uh, quote unquote, refugees in places like Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, um, uh, and 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 this is because. Um, uh, oh, I'm skipping ahead a little bit because I need That's to talk okay. about 2009 Urumqi riot because up to uh, you know, so through 1990s, it was kind of this low burn. Um, yeah. uh, flash spots. There were just a couple bombings on the buses on, on Rurunchi, but it was still largely restricted within Xinjiang. And then in 2009, so something, a couple things happened in 2009. So, so Chinese government decided, okay, maybe all this problem uh, in Xinjiang is a result of poverty. They believe, you know, from the Marxist uh, point of view, they believe everything is uh, economic. is economic. economic. It's, it's economic. Yes. Right, it's economic. It's economic place. So the problem is that they, they feel that they just need to develop Xinjiang more. So they start to uh, pour more resource into Xinjiang. So one, one is uh, infrastructure development. They, they build a railroad to Kashgar. And and then uh, the second thing they did was, okay, so, so they say, well, if there's no industry in Xinjiang, we'll bring the Uyghur people to the coastal factories. Uh, because, um, you know, even till very recently, 80% of the Uyghur population still engage in subsistence agriculture. And, mm. and, and background of that is the Uyghur population actually quadrupled since uh, 1949. Like, in 1949, there was about like 3.5 million Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Today, there's like 11, 12 million. We don't know. We the last census was taken. Uh, last nationwide census was taken in 2010. So the 2020 census is going to come out soon. If we not come out already, so we can check. So it's either 11 or 12 million Uyghur now. So, but as I mentioned before, um, most of the rural Uyghurs. Uh, Farming families and live in these oasis oasis towns on the edge of the Taklamakan Desert, the world's yeah. second largest moving sand desert. So the the arable land is limited. You know these these right. oasis, uh, they were being fed by the glacial runoff from the Tianshan Mountains. But when your population has quadrupled, and with most of the people still in, uh, still depending on subsistence agriculture, there's a lot of uh, youth unemployment problem in, in rural Xinjiang, particularly in the southern Xinjiang. So one of the uh, track that Chinese government applied was they organized, uh, because also there's a language barrier, as I mentioned before, um, you know, before they could be educated all through college in Uyghur only. So at this, in the early 2000s, there were still a lot, many Uyghurs in Xinjiang, especially in the southern Xinjiang, uh, more rural parts. 
Xinjiang that do not speak Mandarin Chinese, right? They they the only only conversant in, in in Uyghur. So the Chinese government decided what is going to be uh, uh like they have to intervene to organize the Uyghur laborers to go to the coastal factories, and so they will give like tax breaks. Uh, and various incentives for the for the factory owners to hire Uyghurs from mm. Xinjiang, and then, uh, it, it, like around two thousand, I remember seeing articles from like Radio Free Asia, the the CIA cutout, uh, right, uh, right. was saying, oh, you know, raising all kind of objections to the to the to the Chinese labor transfer program. They were saying, uh. And like uh, you know, like a lot of the religious conservative parents were afraid that their their daughters will you know their virginal daughters will be corrupted by the Han culture. They will have maybe have premarital sex while they're away from home. They may even be like marry Han Chinese men. You know, like so 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 you know, like they were already circulating these kind of uh, kind of either rumors or or exaggerating people's concerns and. Then 2008 is a great financial crisis that happened. So right. that affected a lot of the export of a lot of the factories set up for export along the Chinese coast. But China, at this time, Chinese government was still bringing the Uyghur laborers from Xinjiang, right? So that created some discontent among the Han. Uh, some some of the Han Chinese workforce that were working in those yeah. factories. Some labor. So in two thousand oh nine, I remember this because I watched this unfold unfold online. I I was very very online, and I saw okay. somebody posted in a Chinese forum saying, "Oh, a uh, uh, Han Chinese girl went into uh, accidentally went to the Uyghur dormitory in in the in the in one of the factory in Guangdong, in Saoguan, and." The claim was she was gang raped, and then the authority is trying to hush up because they're trying to protect their policy of sending Uyghurs into Guangdong, right? So, so they're they're claiming that the, the the government is trying to cover up this incident. So that post went viral on the Chinese uh, social media at the time. Uh, also, by the way, in two thousand oh nine, none of the Western social media platforms were banned in China yet. So. So Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, that was all available. So anyway, so at that time, the, the rumors spread like wildfire. And then a couple hours later, I saw the update. There was a large mob gathered outside the Uyghur dormitory in, in the factory. And, right. and thousands of these laid off uh, workers, they stormed the, the Uyghur dormitory. And, 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 these, and these, were hand, these were hand laid off workers that stormed. Yes, yes. So they, they, they stormed the Uyghur dormitory and then there was a massive brawl and uh, two young Uyghur men were killed in the fight. So this was a Saoguang incident in early part of 2009. And mm. at that time, a lot of the Uyghur um, diaspora overseas organization, they started to create their own rumors to feed back in Xinjiang through Facebook, through, through you know, other social media, they're claiming it's it's the Uyghurs the women who were sent over to work in the factory. They were getting they were being gang raped and killed by these Han Chinese men, and and so there was a large protest 
uh, gathered in Urumqi on June 5th, uh, 2009, outside of the, the Urumqi provincial government. Um, mm. And, and but the, the, you know, at the time, they were demanding uh, the Chinese government to prosecute the perpetuators, right? Um, this was actually right around the time when um, this incident just happened, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the perpetuator was, there was actually an investigation into what happened in Sao Guang. So according to the, the uh, report that on CCTV, it was a laid off worker who, who felt disgruntled, who, mm -hmm. who spread this rumor online, and he was actually arrested and tried for, you know, causing social disturbances. And, and as, as well as a group of uh, ringleaders who organized the mob. And the, uh, and, and what, at the time, the, the, the chairman of Xinjiang Autonomous, uh, uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, the, the Uyghur chairman, he explained what happened. He said, well, yeah, this, uh, this Han Chinese girl, he went inside the uh, dormitory to look for her boyfriend. But she actually went wander into the the Uyghur side, and 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 there were like uh, so there was a, a group of uh, young Uyghur men. They they teased her, and she just freaked out and she screamed. So that's what happened. What that's what triggered it. She screamed. She mm. rang out. That was the end. But some people heard the scream. They they kind of exaggerated the story online. They they claim she was gang rape, and the Chinese government is trying to cover up. Which led to the whole whole blow up, whole whole kind of race riot that happened. Mm. Um, mm. This again, this story was uh, the, the 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 rumors, internet rumor mills were fermenting, and they were being fed back into Xinjiang by the various Uyghur uh, exile organization based in Berlin, based in Washington. Um, mm. A large, large crowd gathered to protest outside of the Xinjiang provincial government on on uh, June, the, the June July, July fifth. But they were, but the provincial government was walled off by by riot police, so they couldn't enter. They couldn't get close. So, so what happened next is the crowd turned around and went into the surround, surrounding neighborhood. Then they start to attack any Han Chinese uh, they could find. And, right. and this was the uh, evening uh, rush hour. So the, a lot of the, the, that part of the neighborhood, that was on the transit route for a lot of the workers who were just leaving work, going home. So they would stop buses on the street and they will pull off the, the, the Han Chinese from the bus and start beating them on the street. Uh, this, the violence lasted uh, the whole day and whole night. I think the Xinjiang provincial government was caught off guard. They didn't expect this level of violence to, to break out. Um, so there was, I, I was trying to read the expat account who were in Urumqi, in Xinjiang at the time. So I, I was looking, because I, you know, I, I don't fully trust <laughs> report, news report, you know, I, even Chinese right. government state media report, I feel like they put filters on that. So I tried to find first, uh, person eyewitness account. So at that time, all the blogs were open. I was searching for all the expat blogs to find out mm. what happened. So, so people were uh, like uh, getting confused. That there's, 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 yeah, there was rioting on the streets. There was no, um, you know, police was not seen. 
I think they're just uh, the Xinjiang government just wasn't prepared, and and um, th there was actually one. Uh, I found a blog of this one Chinese American dude who was studying in in a Urumqi University at the time. Um, mm -hmm. So he, he 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 was learning the Uyghur language for a couple of years. So he has some some sort of fluency, and he could also pass for Uyghur because his uh, his mother is white. So mm -hmm. he's, he's he's mixed. And so he has that. He looks Central right. Asian, yeah, because his right. 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 looks Central Asian. So mm -hmm. he was caught outside that night on on the, on the July fifth. Um, um, he was approached by a, a group of people, you know, demanding to know who he is. So he, to save his life, he claimed, uh, he know his, his Uyghur is still not local fluent. Right. So he claimed he's a, he's a overseas Uzbek who is returning to visit Xinjiang, right? And so, so then, then they let him go. But as the crowd was leaving, one of the Uyghur, young Uyghur men uh, very healthily told him, like, man, don't, don't tell people you are Uzbek, you know, we, we don't like Uzbeks either, so just, just, <laughs> just, 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 yeah, just, 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 say, just say you are overseas Uyghur, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so he, he, he got out that, you know, very much frightened, but, but got out with his life. And uh, at the end, there were about 197 people killed. Uh, you know, most of right. them Chinese. Um, but they were also attacking like unveiled women on the streets, like like you know the 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 Uyghur women who they thought dressed too slutty. That there was right. also a target. Right. Um, you can actually find the surveillance videos on YouTube. Uh, like if you if you search Urumqi uh, June June fifth. Uh, riot videos you 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 you'll see like um i saw a couple of videos where they have a uh have a group of people they're stopping the bus they're pulling people off the bus and beating them on the pavement and there is mm -hmm. like a couple of like women covered completely in burqa uh they were mm -hmm. beat they were also beating people on the ground with, with uh with sticks uh it's 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 kind of very brutal stuff and it's very intense yeah yeah, and so 197 people were killed. Over 2,000 people were injured, um, and and it's I I read various accounts. You know, many people think there was some sort of organization. It wasn't just a spontaneous riot. There mm. was some organization behind it because uh, uh, again, I read all the dissidents and all the uh, you know China critics to to make. To, to, to for cross-referencing. So one of the guy who was arrested after July 7th uh, was this uh, Uyghur journalist um, mm -hmm. who was like, he was a, from a family of the Uyghur communist uh, family, so he, he was pretty higher up. But he spoke to Yazhou Zoukan uh, or the Asian journal in uh, uh, um, uh, a newspaper based in Hong Kong about the incident soon afterwards. What he said, he thinks uh, the Urumqi riot was organized by uh, by this this uh, this jihadi organization that was based uh, based outside of uh, outside of Xinjiang. And he he said, for, by all accounts, that the violence was organized. There was some kind of organization. Was it yeah. Was it the ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement? Um, 
the name he gave, I, 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 I'm pulling a blank here. It's uh, Hezber something something. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have a notes in front of me, so I am just pulling straight from my, my memory. Okay. I can, I can no, no, look I, it up and send it to you later. But sure, sure, the, sure. I do believe the Turkestan Islamic, uh, the Turkestan Islamic Party, or back then, East Turkestan Islamic Movement did claim some, some, some sort of a responsibility for that. Uh, they claim responsibility for all the attacks, almost all the attacks inside Xinjiang, and, uh, and. That was a big watershed moment between kind of ethnic relationship between uh, and the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I mean, I, I just from online, I, I noticed suddenly the the attitude change, the, the hardened mm. attitude. Because mm. uh, there was a there was a, after after that there was a brief uh, there was an organized kind of a um, kind of so 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 uh, let me finish with the the narrative. The, sure. Yeah, I I do believe there's some kind of organization because one day after the CCTV, um, the Chinese uh, Central Television crew went into Rumchi to cover what happened, and one of their van got ambushed. That one of their van got attacked. Uh, uh, I, I, so I, I I do believe that that's probably not spontaneous, just spontaneous violence. Mm. Um, mm. And and. And the you know so for one day the the provincial government I think they were paralyzed they didn't know what to do um, and uh, there was um, there was a <clears throat> so, so some people were speculating you know maybe the Xinjiang provincial government they don't have the authority to to order the order the the, the police to to open fire or, or and anyway it took it took a whole day. And on July fifth, uh, no, July seventh. So two days after, um, the Han Chinese in Urumqi start to organize like a counter mob. Um, they wanted to go like on revenge attack against the Uyghur neighborhood. Now, now it's going to be like a full ethnic war, right? Race, race war, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but at this time, luckily, uh, after two days, fi finally the. The, the 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 people's armed police arrived into Urumqi, so they they went in just in time to stop the hot mob from going into the the Uyghur neighborhood. And I, I remember mm. I was watching this all online, right? And I rem I was a lot of the Han Ch Chinese in Xinjiang. They were actually angry. They were they they felt like the government was taking on the wrong side. They felt like the government was mm. trying to. Uh, take the Uyghur side, but the, the government is right. trying to stop a race war. That's what. Right. This right after that, um, that's when Xinjiang had an internet lockdown. So, so Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, everything was banned. Um, Xinjiang was offline. Xinjiang was offline for a whole year uh, because the, the Chinese government they 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 wanted to they wanted to stop kind of the internet rumor mill from spreading to inflame the. Mm inflame the, the 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 already you know very tense ethnic tensions yeah. yeah and see. and that's when like a lot of the crackdown started after so after 2009 because um <clears throat> also there was a lot of migrant workers from southern xinjiang from the rural southern xinjiang going to Urumqi for work at this time uh, the Urumqi government, after 2009, they decided they're going to send all these people home. So they, they started to uh, enforce uh, 
Hukou, the the resident permits. You know, in China, in all the Chinese cities, they have this Hukou system, right? You have to have the resident permit to be able to send your children to school, um, you know, get, you know, government benefits, etc. And, yeah. and so they, they, you know, like I say, in China, the policy, how you implement it, it really depends on locality and the government. So in mm. 2009, that's when the city government of Runchi decided to actually enforce the Hukou policy. They, they decided to send all the um all the people all the migrant workers uh we were migrant workers home uh there was a slum area outside of xinjiang um outside of Urumqi, um that was mostly populated by the the, the migrant workers from, from the south so they were all sent home and then there was a that's when like the strict security uh was put in place a lot of checkpoints started to go up in xinjiang mm-hmm. in, in malls on the streets uh, very heightened sense of security, uh, and then, um, uh, but the but the tax didn't stop. I mean, the 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 Urumqi, the tax just fanned out from Urumqi into other you mean parts. The, so more more ethnic violence, more 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 clashes. There's more. There, yeah, there's more clashes. So uh, it is particularly around the time of. Um, of uh, between 2012 and uh, 2014, um, so there was an attack actually in Tiananmen Square. Uh, a, a, a Uyghur, a group of Uyghurs drove a van onto Tiananmen Square to try to run down all the pedestrians, um, and then they they set the van on fire, in hopeful hoping to blow up the van. Um, they end up, uh, you know, killing themselves when the the van burned, but they also killed several people when the the van was running amok um because Tiananmen Square get very crowded uh mm. especially on national holidays uh, and mm. then uh, there was also a follow-up bombing um uh Urumqi, in Urumqi for farmers market so, so there's a group of people dr- again driving cars into the Han Chinese section of Urumqi mm. they, they start tossing homemade bombs into the into the vegetable sellers and mm. the crowd and also in 2014, there was a time when uh, Xi Jinping uh, went to visit Xinjiang to for inspection. So to coincide with that, they set off a bomb in Urumqi train station. And mm. and and for that attack, I, I that I, I know the Turkestan Islamic Party claimed responsibility because I saw their propaganda videos where they they claim responsibility for that. Um, and because they, they actually show all the footage of the, the, the assemblage of the bomb and the, the actual, they, they, then they use the Chinese uh, media's uh, play of the actual bombing. bombing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, but that was, aside from the Beijing Tiananmen Square bombing, uh, that was still mostly happening in Xinjiang, right? Uh, there was actually around 2008 Olympic. There was also a Uyghur girl who was arrested. Uh, he was trying. She was. She brought a bomb onto a, a flight that was going from Xinjiang to Beijing, um, mm-hmm. and she was stopped. And then in twenty, also twenty fourteen, March first, twenty fourteen. Uh, so, a, so I, I talk about those Uyghurs uh, being organized to go to Syria, right? Um, yes. So I want to go back to that. This, this is going no to be problem. because um, Syrian war started to get serious in 2012, and yes. 
because uh, East Tur the Turkestan Islamic Party is a very close uh, Al-Qaeda Al affiliate, they also start to recruit Uyghurs to go to Syria. Uh, but at the time, uh, you know, China sealed down, locked down the border around Xinjiang after 2009 uh, Rumchi riot. So they couldn't mm -hmm. leave, like, you know, to Pakistan or Central Asia. Same routes, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is China. All they have to do is hop on a train. You know, several hours later, they're in the other parts of China. And as I mentioned to you before, even in 2019, uh, the border in Yunnan, in southwestern China, is pretty pretty open. So, I mean, it's pretty open, yeah. right? Yes, so yeah. a lot of Uyghurs were just taking the train from Xinjiang to Yunnan, and then from Yunnan, they would go to Southeast Asia. Why? Because the Turkish government uh, under Erdogan, which uh, they had a deal with the Malaysian government, uh, basically for all the Uyghurs who come to the Malaysian Turkish consulate, the, the Turkish consulate was giving them Turkish passport, allowed them to fly to Turkey. And really? Yes, yes. Okay. And then, so, so they all they have to do just to make their way to Kuala Lumpur, Turkish consulate. So a lot of the Uyghurs then, they were um, going from Yunnan, crossing the border illegally into Vietnam, Laos, uh, Myanmar, uh, Thailand. Uh -huh to Thailand, Cambodia, making their way to Kuala Lumpur. And there is actually a report on this, finally, on Western media by Jerry Shi from uh, Associated Press, um, I think in 2017, uh, about, <clears throat> so when, when, the, when, the, when these Uyghurs arrive in Turkey, once they land in Istanbul, their, their Turkish passport get taken away. And they're greeted at the airport by jihadi recruiters who encourage them to go 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 to Syria. And wow, okay. as a result, this is the policy in 2012 from from 2012 onwards, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So so as a result, right now there are thousands of uh, Uyghur fighters in Syria. They're based in this uh, in the northern uh, northwest part of uh, Idlib province of Syria. They took over a whole town. Uh, Jesu al Shugor. Um, uh, now that that whole town is controlled by the Uyghur fighter. In fact, the Turkestan Islamic Party, they're considered one of the toughest fighters of, you know, of Al Qaeda. You know, they're, they, I, I see various estimates, you know, some say it's thousand, um, you know, anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 fighters, but together with their fam, because they also brought their families. Uh, mm. Uh, I saw a report by um, uh, Eric, a uh, 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 journalist, um, Jenna. Uh, she said um, she, her her so she she has contact with the Syrian opposition. They went into the Idlib and did some filming. She their the estimate from her sources was altogether with her families. There may there's anywhere from ten thousands to twenty thousands Uyghurs with their families. So mm. five thousand mm. fighters, but but family, yeah, yeah, with their families, there could be anywhere from ten thousand to twenty thousand, and they're mostly in the they, they took over the the Syrian town of Al Shugor, kind of Al Qaeda, mm. Al -Qaeda in Syria, kind of give them that's like their reward to set set up there, and their, and, their own autonomous region. Yeah, their own autonomous region in Syria, and 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 so people who who are interested, you know, you can Google articles from 
on 2015, 14, and 2014. 2014 and 2015, you will find a store. Google for like Uyghur refugees, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand. You will see a lot of stories about these Uyghur refugees being uh, detained for illegally crossing the border. And there was a big fight uh, between, diplomatically between government of China and United States because government of China wants them to repat be repatriated to China because some of them are wanted for their role in the 2009 Runchi riot. Uh, but mm. United States want these people to go forward to Turkey, and mm. and for the uh, you know you can, there's a, even a, uh, a instance in 2014 where um, one one Uyghur man uh, got detained on the China Vietnamese border. He took the he took the uh, a, he took the gun from the Vietnamese border guard and start shooting. Uh, there was a yeah you can you can Google that it's all there it's wow. all it's all it's all out there. Uh, in the open, it's all reported, and and then like government like Vietnam and Cambodia because they're friendly with China, so they they just repatriate this Uyghurs uh, back to China. But Thailand is a special case because Thailand is friendly with China, but also Thai military has a very close tie with United States, so mm. they're facing Thailand government was facing uh, pressure from both sides, so. So the Thai government decided to do Solomon's justice. They said, okay, the women and children get to go to Turkey. The men get to send back to China. And that sparked off a huge protest in Istanbul, <laughs> in Turkey. Um, and, and in fact, at, during that protest, a South Korean uh, a, a woman tourist got attacked because they thought she's Chinese. Um, mm. And, and the, the, the Turkish ultra-nationalist party, MHP, who, which organized the protest was questioned over the incident and the the chairman of nhp said well it's not our fault that they all have like slant eyes slanty oh, eyes oh my gosh oh god okay. <laughs> so this was all like reported and and um and then uh follow that up there was a bombing in bangkok in 2015 so people can look that that up too yes. 2015 bangkok bombing in august um, yeah. When they 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 bomb a, sh a Buddhist shrine shrine that's visited by a lot of Chinese tourists, when they first mm -hmm. caught the suspect, uh, they caught the suspect with Turkish passport, and the guy claimed he's a Turkish citizen. But until the mm -hmm. Chinese government produced documentation, it's like no, 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 he's actually a Uyghur from Xinjiang. And when he was arrested, and when they raided mm -hmm. his apartment in, in Bangkok, they found a whole room full of Turkish passport. "Quote unquote fake, fake Turkish passport." Right, but, right, right. But and 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 like even in Indonesia, where I'm right now, there was a four Uyghurs were caught trying to join the the uh, the Mujahideen groups in the jungles in Indonesia, and they also got caught right. with Turkish passport. You can also Google that up. I see. You know, Uyghurs I see, I see. in Indonesia, and uh, they were caught with a Turkish passport again. They try to claim they're Turkish citizens, and it turns out. They're Uyghurs from China. They now okay. uh, they they were serving their sentence in Indonesia. Um, I think recently there's also a like a debate now because now there's there's their sentence is up in Indonesia. Now there's also like a Chinese government want them to be repatriated, and the United States don't want them to be repatriated. There's right, right, still that right, fight. Right. Huh. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. So the the the, the picture you're painting is uh, 
I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. I think I think the last question I actually asked was was the, about the Mujahideen in the 1980s. But uh, I think everyone will agree, probably who's listening to this, is that you, you are very good at uh, uh, you sort of self-propelled uh, in a sense that you're describing everything in. The amount of information is, is excellent, uh, and the detail, and the, and again, the, the links. Let me, let me so, just get to the last um, incident uh, in the cool Sure, sure. No, no, I'm not finished yet. Yeah, that's go, that's go what ahead, I'm yeah. going to get to. Because, yes, uh, go ahead. So around 2014, when China realized there was a problem with the Uyghur exodus to go to Syria, they also started to crack down the southern borders along Yunnan and the and Guangxi area. And that's when the all those Western journalists at around that time, they were posting... Uh, they're posting picture of these Chinese posters. They say, "Oh, these Chinese are so racist," because the the the, the poster were saying, "Oh, reporting the you know <laughs> reporting the people uh, who who are illegally crossing the border, but with like depiction of someone who looked like a Uyghur, you know, Central Asian." Mm-hmm. So they're like, "Oh, you know, these Chinese are so racist." But but what Chinese government were trying to do at that time was trying to stop these Uyghurs trying to go to Syria to join the. <laughs> to, to, to fight in the jihad. But yeah. after the crackdown, there was eight, a group of eight Uyghurs who were kind of stuck in Yunnan because they couldn't, they were in Kunming, but they couldn't get out of China because of the border restriction. So they mm-hmm. decided among themselves that they, they, they were just going to wage jihad locally. And this, they took knives to the Kunming train station on March mm-hmm. 1st. And they start just randomly slashing, stabbing people. Uh, Thirty people died. Thirty people died and and more injured. Uh, this was a major inc- because before a lot of the terrorist incident happened mostly in Xinjiang, right? Um, and and you know there was that incident happening in Tiananmen Square, but you know Chinese government didn't make a big deal about it. Uh, but in the Kunming train station, this. This is uh, it's happened in 2014, also like time of cell phones. Like people were mm. posting footages on Chinese social media on Weibo. You know, everybody find out, and and it, that was a, that was a very big shock because also Yunnan is kind of known as this like happy place, right? Like mm. over everybody mm. get along, um, and and yeah, so so that. That I think that's one of the that's another watershed moment. Uh, one watershed moment was two thousand nine Wuchi riot. Another one yeah. was twenty fourteen uh, Kunming train station attack because right. uh, because now like uh, for for a lot of the Chinese people outside of Xinjiang they realize oh this is not just a Xinjiang issue <laughs> this is uh, like like this could happen in in our city too and mm-hmm. and so that. Okay, so so now go ahead, go go ahead with your question. Sure. I mean, I think I, I just wanted to, to say that it's it seems to me that um, you know anyone trying to understand this issue, say like sort of what's happened and how did we get here, that this isn't necessarily one track. That it seems to be you've got the uh, the fallout of um, the CIA uh, funded war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, as well as Saudi Arabia. Uh, pumping money into that war with Wahhabism and and the Mujahideen fundamentalist view and the uh, madrasas uh, 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 training and, and uh, radicalizing, so you have that element from the all all throughout the 1980s into the early 1990s, uh, which has its role in in the the Xinjiang story. But at the same time, you also have the the economic story and the ethnic story. So you have um, uh, Han Chinese who have family links to the coast. And as market reforms 
uh, spread across China, they have a foot up or an advantage over the Uyghurs who don't have that link. And then you have an economic disparity, an inequality between the two. And then, as you say, the those kinds of things uh, uh, being the sort of tinder the spark of 2009 with yes. the, the factory incident, the girl going to the factory and all that kind of stuff. So, so there isn't particularly one track here that says, okay, this is how we got to um, where we are. There's a number of contributing factors. That's why they don't tell you that story in the Western mainstream media, because they prefer a black and white story, right? Like a good right. versus yeah. evil narrative. Uh, you know, yeah. This is too much nuance and too much context for people. Like, right. 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 two right. hours right. to get to where we are. Like they, they, you know, they, yeah. then they have to explain about, you know, the, the, the economic issues, uh, the, 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 the class divide. You know, that, that's just too much for the, <laughs> too much right. to well, it's Not consumable, right? It's not easily <laughs> sell off news, right? Not, 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 not bite size. Um, but okay. So, um, I mean, again, also there's other elements to it too, which is also uh, you've also brought up earlier, which is along with the Mujahideen war and its influence. You've also got the economic thing I've just explained, and your sort of standard ethnic tensions. Yep. Then you also have another more recent element, which is the Turkish and U.S. Uh, effort to you know uh, play its cards within Syria and using a fundamentalist uh, force to do their dirty work. And recruiting them from wherever, but particularly from Uyghur and, and, and from the Uyghurs. And I didn't realize that uh, this, the Turkish passport phenomenon that you explained—that's something I've never heard, which is fascinating. The, the free free passports to fly into Turkey and and then become a, a mujahideen, uh, a new mujahideen, mujahideen 2.0, perhaps. But um, on top of that, you also then have also just this the small thing of of Mike Pompeo's 2024 bid and his sort of yes. uh, is sort of cherry on the top to sort of throw in there and which puts us into the future um i i don't i mean it's not an easy topic to cover this This is as you say two hours to get where we are now um i think i i guess maybe if you wanted to wrap up on the on the sort of extremism stuff um yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know that you've explained i, I think I, i'm glad you mentioned the the train station one because that that was a, a big uh in incident and that was it was a film that came out, I think, last year. I mean, I'm in Beijing. I, I watched it. Uh, Chinese, Chinese state media released it. And they showed that footage. They showed the guys with the knives in the train stations, which, which if anyone's seen the footage of, of the London attacks, when they bring knives out, very much like that. So it, almost, and again, as you said, um, these are the same people. These are the guys who went to Syria uh, or were or planned on going to Syria. Yep. So these are the same lone wolf phenomenon you've seen in France, Belgium, uh, across the world. I mean, um, similar attacks it's, like it's, the, the the car running over people in Tiananmen Square. They did that before. Yeah. They did they do similar attack in Europe. You know, like yes, yeah, exactly. They say the, the same in Nice and the same in, in Barcelona and and in London. Uh, yeah, a van or a truck or a, or a vehicle using that attack. So okay, um, I think I think to be honest, we've covered the, the you know the the, the 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 terrorism element of this. Yeah. And so now it, it brings us back to. Uh, two things, and I think obviously I'm sure that you you've been speaking for a long time, so I'm trying to trying to give you a bit of a rest, but you've got some more to there. Um, there's two things I think we should we should try and and, and sort of maybe um, give some sort of a close to this, but um, no no need to rush. Um, so the first thing is is of course uh, what is happening in the camps. So I think we've mentioned there's vocational training. It's not genocide. Um, so I think we've already covered that, but I think. 
You, you mentioned Adrian Zenz, and he says he called it cultural genocide. He says that he used the phrase culture genocide, not genocide, and it's Mark Pompeo who's jumped on that. Um, I just wanted to see, you said you read all of his reports. So what kind of stuff does he detail? And how good the methodology i've heard people question his methodology the numbers the, the sample sizes uh yeah and and not just him i think you've already mentioned uh, millward this professor how um how good is the data that backs up these these wild claims and what claims do they actually make okay so first uh, claim is uh, one million uyghur in camp right and now they're claiming up to like three million uyghurs in camp right first of all that's a huge number there's a total of maybe 11, 12 million Uyghurs total in Xinjiang, you know, like even 1 million Uyghurs in camp, that would be like 1 in 10 people, right? And the first report, uh, so all the, uh, all the media boils down to two sources. One source is, uh, which came out earlier than Adrian Zenz in mainstream media, is a uh, is, is a one report by China Human Rights Defenders, this uh, Washington-based NGO founded by NED, National Endowment for Democracy. They, they, their report was based on interview, uh, supposedly interviews with eight Uyghurs from eight separate villages from rural Kashgar prefecture. And, and based on the witness testimonies, they did a tabulation. They say, okay, based on the numbers here, if we can extrapolate to the whole population of Xinjiang, right? And that's how they arrive at one right. million. You can or you can find the report online. The China Human Rights uh, Defenders report right. of one million Uyghur in camp. Their methodology was listed. It was based on a testimonial of supposedly eight people from eight separate eight villages. People. Yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah. So they then they even said, "Oh, well, <laughs> they they put a caveat there. Well, it's an extrapolation, right? But it says it's not unreasonable <laughs> to extrapolate. Uh, so they extrapolate from eight people to you know eleven million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and that's how they come up with a one one million Uyghur uh, uh, number. So that they're they're the first to break out the in right. the mainstream media." Right. Second one is Adrian Zenz, who provide kind of the scholarly, uh, yes. kind of a scholarly aura, right? Because Adrian right. Zenz is a well-respected scholar from the Victim of Communism Foundation, right? Yeah, very, reputable, of very reputable foundation. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Not not sensationalist at all, and uh, doesn't list uh, Nazi soldiers as victims of communism as well. But yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, he, so um, he's uh, he's also quite he's not exactly um uh let's say uh, he's he's been reported as being an evangelical christian with a mission uh, a particular well, mission he's he said he said on records that he felt he was this was a mission from god you know uh -huh. to, you know the, what he's doing right now about china is his mission from god he, he was quoted in the newspapers and, and he right. before he got into this xinjiang research his uh, best well-known work is this book called Beyond Rapture. <laughs> but, <Okay>. but <laughs> people can Google that, you know, okay. talk about like, spiritual spanking of children and how homosexual will burn in hell, uh, all, the, all okay. that great stuff. Uh, and right. okay. so, he, he's, uh, so his report, I actually read his report as yes. well. 
This report about uh, one million Uyghur in camp was based on so-called leaked document from a Turkish exile organization, uh, a, 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 a Uyghur exile organization based in Turkey, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, just a side note: this 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 Uyghur exile uh, organization also happened to stand the the Turkish-Sistan Islamic Party in Syria, you know, they, they post a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of their support uh, for their brothers in Syria all the time. But anyway, so, okay. so this organization <laughs> supposedly so, so provided a leaked yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. no, leak document to Adrian Zenz um, that claimed that uh, in, in all of Xinjiang, there, there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, being in, in detention. And then Adrian Zenz, in his report, he it's also extrapolation. He also said it's not unreasonable to extrapolate. There could be up to a million Uyghurs in camp. So if you actually read the details of the report, it's all extrapolation. But when it's uh -huh. reported in mainstream media, it's reported BBC and BBC. That's been taken as a gospel fact. It's right. like one million Uyghurs now become like undisputed fact. Like everybody right. quoted, it, right? They, they 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 say, "Oh, Adrian Zenz said in his report." They don't they right. don't hide in the caveat, even those Zenz or yeah, you know, they also put the detail that uh, Adrian Zenz, the evangelical Christian on a mission to save China, got a report from the ter from a somewhat quasi terrorist organization in Syria <laughs> that eight people and then extrapolated. <laughs> so okay, yeah. So yeah. so yeah. yes, the, the big caveat is not is not put on that. Okay. Yeah. But, but, you know, the, there are, you know, re-education centers and, and vocation centers in Xinjiang, right? And, and we, we don't know the exact numbers of the people um, who are in. And, and you know, I, uh, well, according to the Chinese uh, government, you know, the, their, their role is to, to re-educate and then to reintegrate them back into society. And, and that's why the vocation training was part of their part of their program uh, because they, they still believe that they need to um, because one of the one of the one of the thing that people um, get influenced by these uh, by these by these returning mujahideens is that they tell people like you you're not don't have anything to do with the Chinese state don't have anything to do with the communist right because that you you know you will be tainted by association so mm -hmm. and also for women they're not allowed to go outside the household they should be fully covered up so don't go don't work and don't participate in any part of the society that the chinese government has a role in it right because mm -hmm. that's atheist that's communist that's that will change mm -hmm. so right so so there's the the program um what the chinese government put in xinjiang the goal is kind of reverse that uh, that's mm -hmm. why they call it re-education center. I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm, I think it's, just, it's possible that in any kind of a large detention program, there there could be possible cases of abuse. I I think I can that that. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, I mean that that just happens. You can I'm kind of a large systematic uh, incarcerations, okay. but I don't right. think it's uh, it's it's as portrayed in uh, in the in the Western media right now as like equivalent of a Nazi concentration camp because yeah. they are not the same. That that's that's not that's not the same. And 
and because this is not a, a program to exterminate Uyghur as a people, right? It's mm. a it's a program to um, to integrate Uyghurs into the Chinese society, even the the ones who have been uh, influenced by radical ideology. Um, and I, I'm not sure if this is the best way, but then. I, I, I look at what other countries have done, right? What you know, what Europe has done, what the West has done. Uh, I, I I don't. I'm not convinced. You know, there's. Uh, you know, I haven't seen a better alternative. Mm, mm, right? Because mm, mm, like we have all these radicalized youth from Western Europe who go travel mm. to Syria, right? And the all, MI6 and all these intelligence agencies are fully aware of these people. They, these people are being monitored, but they choose to, you know, close one eye and let them travel to, to Syria. You know, maybe, maybe they thought that, that it's better than they get out of the country than, than stay in Europe. Yeah. And, you know, so, so, so now they basically shifted the burden to the people of Syria and Iraq who have to deal with these people. Uh, and, and in fact, we still have camps for ISIS uh, uh, members and ISIS families in northeastern Syria right now. There's a camp called Aho camp in uh, this place called Aho in, uh, in northeast Syria that's holding 60,000 ISIS family members. Not just ISIS, not just not even ISIS fighters, like the women and children, like the, the ISIS, right. uh, the wives and their children. Because a lot of these uh, European government, they don't want to take them back. They they yeah. rather these people rot over there in in Syria than than coming back. And recently, there was a diplomatic role between Australia and New Zealand because yes. there was a there was a person who held dual citizenship in Australia and New Zealand who was uh, who joined ISIS. And Australia yeah. went ahead and revoked his Australian <laughs> citizenship. So so now you. So, uh, so New Zealand government protested because he felt like, okay, you are just dropping this on my lap. Yeah, but yeah, this is right, right. This is basically the Western government way of dealing with it. They they're like, okay, yeah. well, we'll just let them rot in a in a desert in Syria where nobody, we don't hear about them again, you know. And right, and, right. and that is their their way of dealing with uh, radicalization. I mean, that's their de-radicalization program. Ship them to Syria. Just and, and just and then just ignore it and and and, yeah. and pretend it's not your problem and yeah. also and also make it as you said make it Syria and Iraq's problem to to deal with yeah. the fallout of the of the radicalized individuals. And but also, I, think, I think that's yeah. Also to carry out the uh, carry out things that will suit West uh, geopolitical objective because they wanted to topple. Well, that's, that's it. Uh, yes. Assad, they, so. they become yeah. pawns pawns in, a, in an imperial game. Yeah, to to yeah. dislodge Assad or dislodge whichever leader yeah. that is, is is in question at the time whatever needs to be opened up but um i think that's that's really the um the i suppose the the, the point of this all is that that's what's at the core of the discussion is that there is uh, perhaps perhaps you agree with this is the uh, the fundamentalist problem uh the radicalization problem which you know i'm sure there's lots of different reasons why people become radicalized economic and because of then you know organizations being formed etc um, that's at the heart of this discussion, which yeah. is kind of maybe brushed over by the Western media. That uh, for Western media, it's far more easier and far convenient just to paint the evil communists uh, oppressing people uh, and throwing out numbers that always go along with communism. A million I, I dead. I think uh, there's more than more to that because now U.S. Uh, particularly, you know, after Trump administration, is mm. now uh, on an active drive to 
you know, to 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 just start Cold War 2.0, basically. Well, that's it, that's exactly what I was going to ask, actually. So, yeah. so um, this will be the, the the final topic, actually, our fi final point is exactly that because i was going to mention this the drive to war on china i'm sure you've probably heard this phrase um going around john pilger's documentary on it um uh yeah where are we going with all of this uh yeah. and that includes from what is the west going to do with this but also what's going to happen to the uyghurs and what's going to happen in xinjiang where, where do you well, what do you see get your crystal ball out yeah i mean i became suspicious uh when a lot of the Xinjiang uh, reporting suddenly gets tied with set of uh, call for sanctions, right? Like, like first, uh, you know, I, I, I people like uh, Isaac Stonefish uh, was first trying to tie Xinjiang with Huawei, right? Saying, oh, we, we need to, UK need to ban Huawei because, you know, Huawei has business in Xinjiang. And now they're even saying st stupid stuff like, oh, do you know that Bitcoin is uh you know 60 percent of the bitcoin is mined in china and a lot of that is done in in xinjiang because uh you know the because of the, the the electric supply because the, the xinjiang coal mine supplies a lot of electricity that's being used to mine bitcoin that's like now now like all this is used to kind of drive um nar narrative of um forcing the Western company supply chains to move away from China. Because Peter Navarro, who was, uh, you know, the, the Trump's advisor on trade war with China, he was driving this uh, decoupling, right? There was a whole, this is kind of the decoupling from China is a big drive from uh, the U.S. government and U.S. Uh, national security establishment. Uh, because, you know, the, the U.S. and China economy has been so intertwined in the last 40 years some right. in the pentagon and in the national security establishment felt that was actually a liability because right. because you know if we're going to start a confrontation with china all these economic linkages actually hold us back right yes. you know you right. will, so so we will preempt that by we will start decouple from China economically. So you make it easier for us to start a confrontation. To have war, right, exactly. That, that, I feel that's what really driving a lot of this, uh, this right now, this, this Xinjiang, Xinjiang narratives in, in, in media, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, calls for, uh, first a boycott um, cotton from Xinjiang, right? And yeah. that just got extended to call for boycotting ketchup from Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang actually produced like a huge major por uh, portion of ketchup, uh, of tomatoes to make ketchup that's uh, consuming the United States. Uh, like a, a little factoid people probably don't know. So people are now like saying, you know, any business a higher Uyghurs should be boycotted or like the, the Western business should be a refrain uh, from doing business in Xinjiang or, or have any kind of ties with Chinese businesses that have mm -hmm. businesses in Xinjiang. I mean, ultimately come to like, we should just boycott, uh, we should shift our supply chains out of China. We should avoid doing business with Chinese businesses. Again, it kind of ties into this decoupling that has been driving right. by Pentagon for years. I know for, for, for many decades in, in United States, there was kind of two camps. There's kind of the pro-engagement camp and pro-containment uh, camp. And pro-containment mm -hmm. camp is backed up by, you know, 
the Pentagon, <laughs> the, the CIA, the, the, the national intelligence, the, the, industri- the, uh, the military intelligence council, all the U.S. suspects. But the pro-engagement side used to be backed by kind of the, the, the U.S. business who were hungering to go exploit the Chinese labor to get inside the Chinese market, right? And so, so there was a balance for a while. But now we have reached a point where China has developed to a point, some, uh, to a point where some U.S. businesses, uh, especially among the high-tech industry, they, they now start to see China more as a competitor, right, yes. than, than as a market. Um, and, and, and particularly, I'm talking about like uh, like Google, Facebook, and, and by the yeah. way, all these tech companies are fully embedded with the, with the U.S. government, right? And and yes. so they they are also wanted to 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 drive this uh, kind of decouple from China because because Facebook is already they don't have China business, you know, Google is <laughs> they don't have China business, so 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 for them there's limited downside and. And and these people are driving agenda now. Now now uh, with kind of the pro engagement side that's been put in the put in the back burner, the the Pentagon is like taking full control of U.S. China policy right now. That's why. Right, 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 right. And, and in fact, the the latest China report about Xinjiang um, was produced by this uh, newly minted um, newly minted uh, uh, think tank. And, and the, the the funny part is um, I'm trying to find the tweet uh, right now because the because you, all these all these Xinjiang reports are produced by some of the most shady organization. We're we're gonna talk about Adrian Zenz, right? So the yes. latest was, was independent Washington D.C. think tank uh, that sponsors the latest Xinjiang report that's uh, that's making rounds in CNN. Uh, so CNN. Report released Tuesday by the New New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy Think Tank in Washington D.C. So if you Google it, if you find the think tank, uh, it's headed. The founder and president is Ahmed Awani, and uh-huh. his biography is attached. He has served as a member of an advisory board of the U.S. military's U.S. military's Africa Command. This is uh-huh. a guy. Who founded the think tank that was producing the Xinjiang genocide report? The new New nice. Line Institute, and and it gets better. Even this is from the New Line Institute website, their own website. Who we are section. It says this. the New Line Institute for Strategy and Policy is a nonpartisan think tank in Washington D.C. working to enhance U.S. foreign policy. I mean, they don't even lie about this anymore. <laughs> no, it's not even. It's not. It is. That's that's. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, high school level research just just go on the page about okay yep. follow the links and there you are it's, it's all plain to see it's not a it's not a conspiracy yeah. yeah okay see that so that's um so so i suppose you you see that in the next uh, few years uh, in the coming years that it's the decoupling strategy that it's going to be attached with sanctions it's going to be attached with um big uh state level sort of efforts to paint uh, China, the Chinese government, as uh, a villain in this sense, and to then justify whatever policy they see fit in order to execute decoupling. This is from a section of the U.S. government, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure if Biden administration have made up their mind yet on right. what to do with China, because 
But right now, U.S. have so many problems right now. I mean, I like the, the domestically that needs fixing. Mm. Uh, so I mean, I, Pentagon is itching to for the confrontation because for me, it means right. big budget, right? <laughs> but uh, they just ask a huge budget increase so they can put uh, anti. They even said it, anti-China missiles <laughs> on the periphery. Oh, yes, on the island, the island chain. Yes, yeah, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, miss word. <laughs> you know, anti-China. They need like twenty-seven billion dollars to put anti-China missiles <laughs> in a ring around China. Uh, that's that's obviously more important than American yeah. healthcare. And 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 right now, so. so <laughs> So right now we have all these different forces in the United States, right? Kind of, of fighting um, what what is going to be shape up to be the U.S. policy on China, and, and, and just so happened all these China hawks right now they're gaining a lot of uh, media attention, a lot of voice in the media. They're giving a lot of voice in the media, and and Trump and admin has shifted the overtime window so much to the right on the China, U.S. China relationship now. It's going to be hard for Biden even to kind of backtrack on that because now he's going then he's going to be seeing us, you know, weak, right? Like Beijing Biden. <laughs> That's going to be the 2024 topic. And, and I think... Yeah. Um, but but definitely that's I think that's what's driving a lot of narrative on media, uh, you know, like this this kind of let's let's uh, let's let's because there's also kind of freak out among the U.S. elite that you know the China's rise seems unstoppable, um, and 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 if if the trend were to continue, that the U.S. hegemony is going to be eclipsed. If you read a lot of the talking heads and commentaries, there's mm. a lot of that underlying anxiety about losing U.S. hegemony is bubbling through, right? I mean, like, mm. you, even mm. some, some, some people are supposedly on the left, you know, progressive, like Matt right. Stoker, like, like uh, uh, Matthew Inglesia, you know, they talk about, uh, or, or Noah Smith, they talk about, okay, we have to fix our housing order, which is good, but, but we, we need to put America back together so we can compete so we can so we can out compete china it's like why does it it's like how about why, just why is, why, exactly, yes. house order, right? it's like why why like is why is everything about competing for global dominance here like that's yes, so embedded yes. in the american psyche it's like people don't even question it like is that should be an end going itself it's like how yeah. about just providing a better life for american citizens you know like how about just that? Like you don't have to caveat it with, oh, we provide better, a better uh, American uh, life for Americans, so they can rally behind uh, us better to for our war with China. It's like exactly oh, the second part is not necessary. Yeah, exactly, the first part's fine, but why, why, yes, the the motive. Why does that have to be the motive, right? Yeah, yeah. let's rally around and, and make it life better, so that we can beat the Chinese and be number one. Why can't you just give a better life to to your people and and live peacefully? But um, all right, Carl. That that is um. I think this has been. I think our most actually no, without a doubt our most in depth interview we've had. Uh, most in depth episode we've had. Um, we've covered a lot of really interesting stuff, and, and I really think you've um you've given us depth, but not 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 sort of we haven't been lost in the woods. I would say I think everything's been related, and all of it's come together actually very well. Um, so I don't I think if you have any final thoughts um anything final you wanted to say actually before we before oh, we yeah, close yeah. yeah so I mean what US is doing right now is actually not 
helping the Uyghur people who, who they're claiming to be helping because, you know, all these sanctions against any business that hire Uyghur laborers is just going to it's just going to create the unemployment problem for Uyghur people even worse. Now, now like all the all the firms that have, the, uh, you know, maybe export oriented business in China, they will be afraid to hire Uyghurs. You know, all the other if, if they know that's going to become a liability now. Right. They, they, this, is, this is so in a way, I mean, um, I don't think the, the, the impact on China itself will be limited because um, you know, right now at this point, I think China already reached the critical mass. Uh, uh, I mean, China's foreign policy had been relatively sensible uh, in the past 40 years. And like, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and people, even people in the West can see, uh, you know, how, how China versus the West in terms of handling the COVID crisis. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. really shows the uh, Kind of the different difference in the governance. So, so a lot of the um, kind of the hysteria I say about China in the West is all also like kind of cope, kind of like the kind of the cope uh, is say, oh, you know, like China is it's 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 bad. You know, we can't we can't we can we can follow the we cannot uh, follow the example of China. You know, because mm -hmm. China is a fundamentally bad place. It's like mm -hmm. it's like. You know, because we because you know the only reason China is able to fight COVID because it's authoritarian government, right? Like we obviously we cannot adopt that in 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 here. Here we right. we we want our freedom to die. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and of course they can't follow the example of the Chinese because that would be proving that they they are at least able to govern in some capacity. Yeah, it would be a, a egg on the face or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you, Carl. I think uh, it's been a journey. You've taken us from uh, the jungles of Yunnan and, and border crossings in Turkey and Syria, and uh, we've taken us through the Civil War and 1760s and Khanates, and and it's been really fascinating. Um, thank you, Carl, for for um for coming to speak to us. And I think we'll definitely have you on another point to discuss something else. Uh, in as as much depth as as you are uh, very able to. I, I, <laughs> Thank I you. I, I love to talk in case you haven't noticed. So <laughs> <laughs> anytime. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.